With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, Let the team house know how you think we're doing Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 151 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with David Park, D over in that direction producing. We're very excited here to be with our guest, Dale Comstock. Dale is somebody who has done a little bit of everything, kind of done it all uh, in life. Dave, uh, Dale has served uh, in the 82nd Airborne in Special Forces served as a delta operator i believe dale you were the youngest operator in the unit at the time when you when you graduated selection uh this guy this guy participated in operation acid gambit the uh, kurt muse hostage rescue mission in panama the first that was the first successful military hostage rescue operation historically that that uh our country's ever done uh dale served in the gulf war served as a team sergeant um, and then he retired and went on to become a paramilitary contractor, had further adventures uh, over in Afghanistan, which we're going to talk about a little bit in a moment. And then, you know, Dale, uh, he wrote a, a memoir called American Badass. He thought this was kind of his sunset book. He was going to fade away into the, <laughs> into the ether after he finished this book. But instead, <laughs> crazy things keep, kept happening to him uh, in places like Yemen Hong Kong, Singapore, and even in Hollywood. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about Dale's sort of post-service uh, military career. There's there's a lot more to Dale. Uh, I think you should go read American Badass if you want to hear more about his military career. We're going to kind of talk about 
his post-service, post-military career and get into some of the things that he's doing today and some of the books he's working on. So, Dale, thank you so much for joining us from, from Bali tonight. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so sticking with that theme, that, that little uh, uh, um, intro that I went off on, I was wondering if you could start off telling us some stories about Barja Matal in Afghanistan. I believe you were part of a very small group of people that got sent up into, I mean, that was really bad guy country and the terrain just vicious up in that part of Afghanistan. Yeah, so um, there were actually three fobs up there, and each fob, I believe, had a roughly about a platoon, a platoon plus element occupying this fob. Um, Earlier, a couple months earlier, one of the fobs had been overrun, and uh, one of the encampments had been overrun, and I think there was a total of nine casualties, nine Americans were killed, um, a lot of um, Afghanis, um, of course, Taliban. And so the decision was made to pull out the other outposts, the other two outposts that were up there. And one of them was, uh, you know, Barge Batal. And uh, the way I can just, so we were asked uh, by U.S. Mill if we could bring our guys in to help support their withdrawal. So what they were going to do is rip, like literally in the course of three days, they were going to literally take everything out of this camp and ex- uh, extract it. So the camp was in a valley um, with nothing but high ground all the way around it. And it was, as you point out, it was some really uh, rugged terrain. It kind of reminded me, I remember landing at night one time thinking, man, this feels like the jungles of Panama, you know, very wooded, very humid, um, very, uh, you know, rough terrain. But, uh, but they were sitting right down in this little, in this little, little tiny valley, man. And, the camp was probably 100, 150 meters square, maybe. It was very small. It had one little HLZ in the middle that could support one helicopter landing on it. And that was it. Um, and this platoon had been there for at least a year already. And they got no break, man. They were literally every day in gunfights. Um, they couldn't even leave the wire to go patrol. And they were constantly on defense. They were getting hammered down there. And so the decision was made that we got to pull them out. But they couldn't just bring in helicopters. The guys would load up everything and fly away because as soon as the helicopters would come in, they would, you know, they would be in contact. So, so the plan was uh, for us, me and my guys, to fly in. Um, we, they actually they brought us in. Uh, we flew in on uh, some MI-17s, and we had two lifts. We went in, <clears throat> and I think it was probably a total of about 30 of us, uh, me and two other Americans, and then the rest Afghans. And we flew in in the middle of the night, roughly around 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, got out, met with the commander, and uh, basically he explained to us what the, what the mission was. Basically what they wanted us to do was go outside the wire and patrol the area around uh, the base camp and basically just keep the bad guys back, keep them engaged so that the soldiers within the camp could load their gear. Um, they were going to bring in some helicopters. They were going to load up. Uh, they actually had a Humvee there, too. I don't know how they got that there or why they were using it, but they had a Humvee. They were going to take that out. Um, they were just going to load up these aircraft over the course of three days and just keep lifting everything else, lifting everything else uh, out of the camp. And hopefully by within 72 hours, the camp would be evacuated. In the meantime, our job was to just go out there and make contact with the bad guys and keep them back so this operation could uh, take place. Well, I remember that night we arrived. We met with the, the captain. Um, 
told them what we're going to go do. Um, we refitted and then uh, we went out the wire. Um, and we had a, our mission was to go up the road about maybe four or five kilometers. There was a madrasa up there, um, and the Taliban used that as a staging base. Basically, they would link up there, you know, get on their war paint and shit, and then, uh, you know, they would launch their assaults from there. So we were just going to go meet them there at the madrasa and get it on. So as we leave the wire, we're walking up the road. It's uh, relatively dark, and, and then all of a sudden, um, the first CH-47 is flying in. It's going to land. They're going to load it, and then it's going to take off with its, uh, with its with, uh, supply. Well, as the helicopter was coming in to a, for a, you know, a very slow and low hover, um, there was a Taliban on the other side of the wire with an RPG. And guess what he does? He shoots it down <laughs> and it crashes into the fucking camp. Oh, and shit. so, yeah, onto the only HLZ they got, right? So, bam, it slams into, into the deck. Um, the uh, round went through the, the floor of the helicopter. It actually took off the leg of one of the uh, crew chiefs. Um, so now we got a disabled helicopter sitting inside the camp. Um, they can't get it out. They can't do anything with it. They can't bring in more helicopters. Can't medevac, medevac the guys out. And then the firefight started. So we turn around and you could just see green tracers coming down from the high ground, red tracers going up, you know, and there's a full on firefight, man. And so we're standing there going, okay, well, what do we do? Do we try to go back and uh, support them? But then we knew that would be a problem because trying to reenter, you know, friendly forward lines, you know, we're going to get caught in a crossfire. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be a, there's going to be drama with that. Right. So we realized, okay, there's nothing we can do out here let the let the army let the military you know deal with those guys and then we're going to continue mission so we go up the road we make it to the madrasa and it's a dry hole there's nothing there so we're like okay let's move it on up push up at about another four kilometers there's another village up there again we know this is uh this is all taliban country and so we go up there as we're crossing the bridge we get uh word that uh, we got squatters going out the other side of the uh of the village so anyways, they, they clear the village, they get away, nothing happens. Uh, we come back that morning, um, the firefight's over, and uh, you know we refit, regroup, and now we got a, this issue with this helicopter sitting in the camp. Now what are we going to do? So <clears throat> um, what was really interesting was, and I didn't know this, but apparently the Army, they have pilots that are specially trained to fly crippled aircraft, right? So what they did is they brought us one... There's one badass pilot, man, and they roped him in, the fast rope, and his job was to go down there and start that aircraft um, and fly it, fly it out of there. Wow. You know, broken hull, man. Yeah, I didn't know that. You know, I was like, damn, this guy's got some balls, man. <laughs> <laughs> one guy, man, that's his job, right? And so uh, so when they brought him in, they, they roped him in, and, uh, and then they brought a bunch of fast movers, came flying in, and basically was strafing the, the hillsides uh, to keep the bad guys down while this guy was, you know, you know, turning knobs and pulling levers and cranking this thing up. He actually got it out of there. He actually flew this, this broken helicopter out of that uh, HLZ. He cleared it up for us. Um, so we decided, okay, the next night we'll continue mission. And we decided, okay, let's go. I forget the direction, but uh, I think it was west. We said we're going to go west. There's a village about six kilometers away. We know the Taliban stages out of there also. And so we're just going to go down there and, you know, set up an ambush, knowing they're going to come and hit the camp that night, and we're just going to ambush them. So, so we take off, and I remember 
we're walking around this this ridge line. It's really steep, man. I mean, really steep. And uh, we're walking on a goat trail that was maybe 18 inches, 24 inches wide. It was real muddy and slippery. There's a lot of water running down. And uh, we're wearing night vision goggles. It's pitch black. There's a lot of trees. And uh, we're, we're cruising along, cruising along. And then all of a sudden, I hear my interpreter behind me fall off the, the cliff, right? And, and, he, <laughs> and he falls like maybe, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 feet down the side of this cliff, right? And he, and he lands on a little ledge down there. And I could hear him, you know, you know, making, you know, hoofing the puffing sounds and stuff. And, and I turn around, I look down, and I see him. And I see what looks like just his whole face is like black. And, and the black was actually blood. I would wear nine vision goggles. So it looked, you know, it was dark black, but it was all blood. And uh, he knocked his teeth out. His teeth were sticking out through his lips, oh. his gums and stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I looked at his name was HD. We call him HD for Harley Davidson, right? He loved Harley Davidson, even though he'll never own one. That was his thing, you know. So we always call him HD. I go, HD, you okay? Yes, sir. I'm okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I'm like, you don't look good. <laughs> <laughs> and so we finally we, we pull him up, and, and I'm looking at him like, holy shit, dude, you're you're a mess. And uh, and then he get, he begins to explain to me how. That was the first night he ever wore night vision goggles. I said, are you kidding me? This is the first time you've been out on operation and you're wearing MVGs on a goat trail? And uh, I'm like, holy shit, man. What were you thinking, dude? And so anyways, um, you know, he fell off the cliff because he couldn't see because he didn't, use, he didn't know how to use night vision goggles properly. And uh, so we're sitting there and we had a, um, a Navy medic with us. And I bring him back, Corman, and he's kind of patching up you know, H, HD. And then uh, while we're sitting there, we're looking with the thermals, we could see, so we're on this ridge line. we could see directly across to another ridge line, about 250, 300 meters across from us. And we notice a small fire burning. And, uh, and so hold on, hold on for a second. Hey, <laughs> um, I got my maid in here. She's cleaning and talking no, to my good. employees. Uh, so anyway, uh, so we see this fire burning and uh, we're, we're looking and looking and looking and go, okay, that looks really suspicious, man. Well, it turns out it was 12 Taliban um, and what they were doing, they were one um, terrain feature away from the camp. So what they were doing is staging there. What they're going to do is get all spun up and they come around and hit the camp that night from that position. So that was their, you know, their MSS basically their support site. And, uh, um, and so <laughs> anyways, um, so we, we call, we call for close air support and there was, happens to be, uh, I think it was an F-15 on station. He had, he had a couple of JDAMs with him and, uh, he was quite a ways out. You could even hear the aircraft. So we said, Hey, you, this is us. Um, you know, we, we think we identified Taliban location. We gave him the location. He's looking, using his, his optics and, like I said, he was so far out, you couldn't even hear the guy. You had no idea he was on station, but he could actually see. And he's actually counting. He goes, yeah, you got 12 guys, armed AK-47, weapon systems, blah, blah, blah. And he's very, in detail describing these guys. Like, holy shit. So we're like, all right, <clears throat> well, send them to Allah, man. And so the guy releases a 1,000-pound JDAM, and uh, the time of flight was 45 seconds. And when he released it, he said, yeah, it's, it's in round. We actually laid the target for him. And... Uh, and you never heard the aircraft. You never even heard the JDAM until it went off. And when it <laughs> went off 
I saw was pieces and parts flying through the air, <laughs> you know, arms and legs, AK-47. We, we, we captured it all, all on uh, infrared video, and uh, we kind of watched it the next day and reveled over it. But so, so we did that, and so we're like, okay, a mission accomplished. We don't need to go all the way to the village. We go back, and then uh, the next day, these guys got the ass, I guess, decided it was time for some payback. So they come rolling around there again, some more of them. And there happened to be an OP, uh, LPOP up on the, on the high ground and a bunch of privates up there with uh, M240, 249s and edges unleashed and killed another 12, killed another 12 in broad daylight coming around there. So we smoked quite a few guys in a couple of days we were there. And uh, we ended up, you know, getting everybody out, every last man out, get all the equipment out and was able to withdraw within the 72 hours anyways, in spite of a shot down helicopter uh, in, in the compound. So, um but it was really, you know, looking back at that, it's like, man, these guys were living hardcore. You yeah. know, little poncho hooches for a year, sleeping in the mud. They had no Wi-Fi, no TV. They had nothing, man. They were living they were living in really rough field conditions for a year and they're fighting it out every day. And I'm like, man, that's you know, that's some hardcore shit there. But uh glad to get them out of there because man, they were taking a beating and they were pretty much combat ineffective they couldn't leave the wire they're just sitting ducks you know and uh and getting pock shots at them so um but that was an interesting mission it was a lot of fun uh went pretty fast and uh but uh you know we got her done and got everybody out of there so unfortunately the other camp um we didn't deal with the other camp but the first camp they took some serious casualties up there i remember when that firefight happened it was, it was a big deal and this these three fovs um were the northernmost uh, U.S. mill camps in in Afghanistan. There was nothing else up there. I mean, they were way out there too. I mean, really tough terrain to get to. Um, you know, like I said, the helicopter is the only way you get in and out of there. And they shot down the one helicopter into the HLZ. It could have been worse, man. Yeah, I could just imagine it had this thing, you know, disintegrated in the compound. You know, maybe you know, kill a bunch of men or something. You know, and hit fuel dumps. You know, it could have been a, a disaster, man. But uh, it all worked out. Um, like I said, I was really impressed with the pilot. I didn't know that they had guys like that. It's like that guy's got a pair of balls like a bull, man. He's, yeah. You're gonna come in there, and, you're gonna rope him in at night, and then he's gonna get he's gonna get in a cockpit and start pushing buttons and pulling levers and, and you know praying to God this thing fucking flies out of there, you know. And he did it, man. He actually did it. So pretty cool. You know, Dale. That's actually you know you mentioned these FOBs and uh, that's something. And for those of you who don't know, it's just a Ford operating base. It's you know a little camp out in the middle of nowhere generally. But you know we've talked about how special ops is really you know everybody loves the sexy mission of the of special ops but these conventional forces were out yeah. there like at these remote places or on these long patrols mixing it up all the time and yeah. they really don't get the credit that they deserve no it's true man it's that's true um i was up in the Corongal also and so you had a bunch of uh, FOPs in that area. Same thing. Those guys were just getting pounded every day, man. Um, Korngal was probably, it was regarded as the most dangerous place on the planet at that time. And it wasn't if you're going to get in contact, it was when and how bad. Um, but if you go up into Korngal, you're going to get smacked, you know. And there was there were guys up there every day, you know, slinging lead with each other with the bad guys, you know. Um, yeah, so, yeah, they're you're right, man. They're out there. They're doing it. You know, and uh, they're living in some hardcore conditions, you know, and uh, and uh, it sucks. But on one hand, you know, I mean, I, 
I kind of live for that, man. You yeah, know, right, right. Cool, you know? right. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> yeah, Dale, uh, as I recall, I mean, you retired from the Army, like, just before 9-11. And, I mean, I, I don't think there's any way that a dude like you was going to miss the war on terror. Uh, you did find a way, of course, obviously, to deal your way into the action. Um I remember you once telling me that you actually went out on ops by yourself a few times with the image, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. I mean, what was this experience like? I guess we're going to say OGA. What was that like by comparison to your military experience? It was, I want to say it was better because, um, one, I was entrusted with a lot of men and a lot of money um, and mission, right? So, you know... I mean, I was literally downrange. I, I, I only can describe it like Colonel Kurtz up the river in Apocalypse Now, you know. There were, there were times I was up the river at a camp with me, maybe one or two other Americans, maybe. And, uh, you know, with anywhere from 50 to 500, you know, Afghan mercenaries. And uh, especially in the, in the beginning of the war, you know, I had uh, a lot of latitude just to get the job done. You know, I can remember walking into the camp, to the base, um, ops and talking to the chief there going, Hey man, I'm going to take the guys out tonight. Um, we'll go down the road. I'm going to hit that target. Be back tomorrow morning. And he was like, okay. And he's out there and he's painting and shit. You know, he's, he's doing it. <laughs> he's like doing some weirder jobs, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, just don't get nobody hurt. You know, let me know what happens tomorrow morning. Like, yeah, Roger that. <laughs> and I'd go do my thing, you know, and, uh, and there was no, you know, there was no oversight. Um, people just trusted me, you know, and, uh, they knew that, uh, you know, I was there to do the right thing to fight the war on terror and to beat the bad guys or whatever it took. And uh, which was really cool, man, to have that kind of uh, given that kind of responsibility and uh, and had that kind of trust to go do that. And there were times you're right. As the war went on, um, I, I worked with some of the same guys a lot. And, uh, you know, they trusted me. I took care of them. You know, I, I, I mean, I treated, they were my soldiers, but uh, I treated them with respect, with dignity. You know, I cared about them and their lives as well as their families. And so, you know, I did what I thought a leader supposed to do. You know, unfortunately, you know, this is going to, I'm going to say it, but uh, a lot of guys don't get it, particularly, you know, in the Navy. Um, you know, they're working with the Indige, and I say the Navy, I'm talking about particularly the SEALs. You know, they don't have that background of working with indigenous people. And Green Berets, as you know, you know, Jack, uh, both you guys, you know, that was our mission, man, is to, is to win hearts and minds, train the indigenous, to basically stand up our own armies um, and to go fight, fight war. And, uh, and that required that we took care of our guys. And we treated them with dignity, with respect. We didn't treat them like dogs. We didn't talk shit to them. We didn't abuse them, um, because that will come back and haunt you. That will that will end you somewhere on the battlefield right. by your own men uh, if you do that wrong. And so, but these other guys didn't get that. And uh, I got countless stories about that. But, anyways, um, that was my mission: was you know always do the right thing by my soldiers. And so I look. I had the paper. You know, I had the checkbook. Again. You know, if the guys did a really good job, it's like, you know, here you go. Here's a bonus to take the day off. Take two days off, in fact, you know. Um, you know, I took care of my guys that way because I knew that would, you know, the return would be huge on that down the road when I needed it. And I was right. So I had a platoon of guys that, uh, 42, in fact, that, uh, 
you know, these guys, I would literally go out on operations by myself with them. Now I know I'm breaking, you know, I was breaking protocol and all kinds of rules, two man rule, you know, as an American, you got to go out with another American. But I got to the point with these guys that I trusted them so much. We'd been out downrange so many times that, uh, and, and I mean, I remember them telling me, you know, I remember one time they, they had a little formation and they're like, Mr. Dell, um, you know, we will never let anything happen to you. We will build a human wall around you. We will protect you with our lives. And I, and I believe that, man, because I saw it, you know. And so I could go out downrange for two, three days at a time. Um, nobody knew where the hell I was at. <laughs> you know, I, I was everywhere in Afghanistan, you know, out in the freaking middle of nowhere, you know. Yeah. And uh, we're going out and hitting targets and stuff, you know. And they could have easily they could have easily let the air out of me out there somewhere and buried me. And said, we don't know where he went, you know. Yeah. And uh, But that never happened. And, uh, you know. Maybe I got lucky. I don't know, but I don't think so. Um, I became very good friends with a lot of these guys, and particularly one of them. He's a he was one of the commanders, young young guy, <clears throat> but um, definitely a go getter, man. The whole platoon was this particular platoon was very um, was very different from your typical Afghan. They were more Western oriented. Um, their mindset, their personalities. You know, you could tell they loved the West. They loved the American way. And so they were different in that regard. <clears throat> but uh, the commander had been around for a while, although he was young. Um, his, you know, his family had fought the Mujahideen. He had lost, you know, family members. And uh, this guy was on the hit list, you know. Taliban wanted this guy because of who he was and what he was in charge of. And uh, I was always afraid that, you know, when we pull out as Americans, this guy is going to get smoked. They're going to kill him, man. You know, him and his family. And... Uh, so one day I just never showed back up. I'd been going to the same camp for about almost 18 months. <clears throat> and then I got reassigned because it was a problem at another camp. Um, and it had to do with, you know, the American Afghan interaction, you know, poor leadership, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of got sent out there to try to, you know, fix this, this situation. Um, so I never got to go back and see, you know, uh, the commander and never saw him after that and then long after i got out i always wondered what happened to him you know i'm like man i'm afraid that uh you know he's going to get killed one day and so lo and behold i get a message on facebook so i was always operating under you know a fake name fake everything you know nobody knew my real name and this guy had found me on facebook and he's messaging me and, and he's like hey man he goes me and my family are now in the united states you know he had he had five five boys and a daughter, I think, and, uh, and his wife, they all made it to the States, made it to Virginia, um, got a job, you know, people took care of them, you know, but they got him a special visa and got him out of there because they recognized that this guy's going to get, he's going to get killed, man. No doubt. He's going to get killed when America's left. And, you know, look, look what happened, man. I mean, let's look what happened last August, right? Here we go. How many people got killed, you know, yeah. how many people are still getting killed? You know, I got I guarantee you, he would have been one of those guys, man. Yeah. In fact, some of my guys were killed. Um, some of my guys, they, they basically, um, I think it was a total of 13. They did, it was the last stand for them, man. They literally fought to the last bullet and then got killed, um, you know, trying to keep, the, keep the, the Taliban wave back. So I know, it's, I know it, it happened, and it was going to happen to him. He, he beat the odds and got out of there. He's living in the United States. Um, I actually just saw him about two years ago, which was really cool. But, um, but yeah, this, you know, I would go out with these guys you know, on a regular basis by myself, you know, and I trusted them. And uh, it is what it is, you know. We got the job done. And um, 
I kind of had a different perspective, you know. Um, you know, I remember the guy that shot down a, a Turbine 33, okay. Um, he was a young guy, in fact. And we got intel one day that he had um, arrived at one of the local villages. And we, we knew he was there. And I'm like, oh, great, let's go get this guy. But my unit, the Afghans, had been, um, basically, they've been stood down, right? Because of this, this issue I mentioned earlier with the SEALs. And, and there was a rift is what happened. And it wasn't the Afghans' fault. It was what I found out later on. So anyways, but nonetheless, they were told to stand down for six months, retrain this, blah, blah, blah. Now we got this guy, from, you know, shot down Turbine 3-3 right down, the, like two kilometers away. And I'm like, man, let me take the boys. Let's go get this, this guy. This guy wasn't the, on the top of the HVT list. I mean, he was right up there. Everybody wanted this guy. And uh, I remember I was told no because the guys aren't, uh, they're not operational. And I go, the hell, they're not operational. I'm running these guys. And I'm telling you they're operational. This is easy. We roll on a roll. We get the guy. We come back. You right. know? And they, they, just, uh, they just said no, kept saying no. And I'm like, look, you hired me as a contractor. All right. I got all these skills. I said, then I'll go. You pay me a lot of money. Let me just go. If I don't come back, I don't come back, you know, but at least send me, man. You know, I'm always mission oriented. These right. guys were risk averse. And it got that way, you know, as you know, Paul, later on in, in the war, you know, everybody became risk averse. Nobody was interested in winning the war. It just became, uh, you know, it, it became check the box. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Check the block, right? Yeah. So I remember some of the camps I'm at. We've got literally, we've got these, these case officers, these logistics officers, you know, from Paris Embassy, from Europe. And we call them combat tourists, as you know, right? They're there checking the block. You know, I was in combat when they never left the damn wire and they didn't even have a damn firearm on them. You know, um, it just turned into a total bullshit. Um, that war should have been over a long time ago, but it just turned into a self licking ice cream for a lot of people, you know, and uh, sadly it is what it is, but that's why I left in 2011. I just had enough. And I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, I'm going to get killed for what? For nothing. And I was right for, mm. I was right. Look what happened, man. Look yeah. what happened. All these men are dead. Women are dead for nothing. Nothing happened, you know, nothing. We so, killed UBL a long time ago. <laughs> why, why we were still there then, you know? So it's all bullshit. Dale, uh, like you said, you left in 2011 from uh, as far as contracting for our government. Um, you kind of thought you were going to – I mean, you did go into uh, television a little bit. You started making some inroads on Hollywood. You thought kind of like your soldiering days were behind you from some of the things you've said. Um <laughs> But then, uh, well, in the sequence of events, I mean, what what was it? The Hong Kong gig that came first? So yeah, so what happened was I literally got discovered by Discovery Channel, mm-hmm. right? Which kind of weird, and <laughs> uh, and so they, they you know they said you know we'd like for you to try out. It was a TV show called One Man Army, and I thought, well, okay, that'd be kind of cool. Do that, be kind of like closing the chapter to my military paramilitary career, you know. And I thought it'd be kind of a cool way to go out, do a little TV show. 
And so I did, and I got selected. And, uh, and so I did, I guess I did pretty well on that show. And then I got a call about six months later from NBC, said, hey, we like what we saw on Discovery. Would you be interested in trying out for this TV show, which was Stars and Stripes? Um, <clears throat> as I understand it, there were about 10,000 applicants um, that, that tried out for that show. Um, I was one of eight, along with Chris Kyle and a couple of the other guys that are on the show, to actually get selected. It was a pretty long process. It was uh, a lot of interviews. I'd actually fly out to Universal Studios and do an on-site interview in front of the cameras. You know, again, I did pretty well, um, and so I got selected, and there I was. Now I'm doing I'm doing the Hollywood thing, and then that turned into um, other people started noticing me, wanted to meet with me. Um, in fact, I went out with uh, so I became really good friends with Terry Crews, still am to this day, <clears throat> and. Uh, Eva Torres, the WWE wrestler, she invited me to come out with, uh, to an event. So I went out there. While I was out there, I got approached by some people that knew of me. Um, actually, one of them was a former student of mine and said, we'd like to talk to you. And so, okay, we do. And it's a production company. They're, they're pretty uh, right wing out of Dallas. And I said, we need a poster boy. We want to make a, a uh, conservative production company. We want to invite veterans to come out and participate in Hollywood events, things like that. We want to be more, we want to do more right-leaning stuff than left-leaning stuff. And we need IEU, the poster boy. So I was all in and uh, started networking, going to a lot of uh, producers. You know, I just started getting around in Hollywood is what was happening. And they were trying to pitch some TV shows for me. I ended up on a few shows. Um, you know, so this whole thing was starting to get some, grow some legs. And couple years out into it there's some other weird stuff that happened i, I i'm not yeah i probably shouldn't share it today but uh there, there was some other really weird stuff started happening right little did i know that um not only am i a poster boy but i'm actually a prop for a bigger um for a government agency let's put it that way so there's a very huge chinese and russian presence in hollywood they own everything so i'll let you put it all together next thing i know i'm like why are you guys giving me all this cash and I'm not signing for anything, you know, and, and on a regular basis. And what am I doing here again? You know, just do your thing, you know, be, be the Hollywood guy, you know, you're networking. And it, uh, okay. And I didn't ask you any questions. Um, but, but it got really weird, really weird after a while. And then, um, then I realized, holy shit, man, um, I'm in another spy versus spy fucking movie and don't even know it yet. And so, um, <laughs> so anyways, after a couple of years, um, I was asked to move to Hollywood to, to live out there. I was told I could be the next Danny Trejo. I could be on all kinds of TV shows. And I had to do a little thinking, man. I was like, man, is this who I really am? Is, is this me? You know, because I don't like these people, man, for the most part. You know, they're, they're a different culture, different mindset. Um, you know, I'm used to actually being an action guy and not pretending to be an action guy, right. you know. And right. so, so that kind of ended up i ended up moving to hong kong um and i was working over there running a security detail for a multi-billionaire investment banker which is okay it's kind of cool i was living downtown one chai hong kong dale um dale can can i interrupt for one second for to, a sponsor sure. uh quick live read yeah, here? And, and we'll jump we'll jump right back into your story i'm sorry yeah yeah no hey yeah we want to uh thank our sponsors tonight sap gear we've told you guys about them before uh, they have a lot of really cool stuff on their website, uh, sapgear.com. Uh, but uh, Sapgear partnered with Ed Calderon 
to produce his original merchandise. Actually, I'm wearing one of his uh, one of their shirts right now. Very cool stuff. Uh, Ed is also known as Ed Manifesto Online. Ed's Manifesto at Ed's Manifesto Online. He worked in the fields of counter narcotics, organized crime investigations, public safety in the northern border of region of Mexico. Um, uh, he's uh, he's doing a lot of uh, stuff in North America now, right now, doing security consulting, conducting seminars, private training, and. Anti-abduction, escapology, unarmed combat, and uh, region-specific executive protection work. Um, And Sap Gears carries his uh, original Snake Reaper. This is the logo. It's a cool logo uh, line, including hoodies, hats, shirts, stickers, and more. And, I mean, Sap Gear has a lot of stuff that we like. Really uh, good stuff. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about in future segments uh, some of the other they gear. They got good stuff, guys. Us. Check out sapgear.com. Uh, um, long sleeve t-shirts like this one, uh, sapgear.com team, uh, the team, team for 15% off at sapgear.com team for 15% off. All right. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. So, Dale, back to you. You were working for an investment banker in Hong Kong. That was the deal? Yeah, so I was protected. I was running a security detail. I was one of the guys running the security detail. Um, so, you know, I ended up falling into that. A couple things happened that prompted me. Besides the Hollywood thing, not, you know, I wasn't interested. I started losing interest in it. Um, the other thing that happened was I had sold another one of my companies. So I've owned several companies. I've sold them to G4S, Wack & Hud. I sold this other company in 2011 to another company. Um, I was running this company out of my office at home uh, for about two years, making roughly $23,000 a month just sitting in my office. Um, and anyways, that went, went south. And it didn't go south because I was sitting in my office. <laughs> it went south because the investors were doing their job. But nonetheless, I decided uh, to pull a pitch and get out of there. Ended up in Hong Kong. And then uh, that's actually where I met my wife. Um, she's Indonesian. And uh, she went back to Indonesia. I went back to the States. And then eventually I went to Indonesia, you know, chasing drawers. Uh, that's, what, that's what we do, right? And so, so I went over there to meet her and, and started looking around and started realizing there's business opportunities. So I'm actually talking to you right now from Bali. That's where I'm, my office is in Bali, Indonesia. But we uh, decided, you know, hey, 
there's some business opportunities here relative to security, canines, blah, blah, blah. And my wife has started our, our business here. And we've been in Bali. I've lived in Indonesia now almost seven years, I think. And I've been in Bali over four and a half years. Um, and we're running uh, explosive detector dogs, patrol attack dogs, narcotic detector dogs for like all the Marriott properties and the local venues here. So it's a pretty cool gig. Um, you know, I get to... I get to play with my dogs and make money off of them too, you know, and, uh, you know, we did really well here right up until COVID, you know, took our legs out from under us like everybody mm -hmm. else. Um, wasn't really COVID. It was all the freaking crooks that capitalized on it, but nonetheless, uh, we're back and uh, we're back in business and, uh, just signed another contract, signed two contracts. So, um, you know, we're back in business here. So that's why, that's how I ended up in Bali. Um, I live here. I have a home in Florida as well. I also actually have another home in, in uh, the Philippines. Um, but uh, so I kind of like live out of a suitcase. So with all that said, you would think that, okay, after the Holly, you know, the Hong Kong deal, that was kind of a cool gig. Um, kind of. Um, everybody thinks that being a, a bodyguard is like really, um, you know, really cool. I got to tell you, man, it sucks. All right. On one hand, it, you know, living in Hong Kong, that was the cool part, living in Hong Kong. OK, one of my favorite cities until the Chinese took back over. Uh, but it's a really cool place. But uh, be it the work of a body card is it sucks. And I, I keep saying that, but it actually sucks. It's a good <laughs> job for it's a good job for younger guys. Um, you know, but, it, you know, for guys like me, it's like insulting in a lot of ways. You know, I so the pay was OK. Actually, the the pay has been really well. I got paid very well. Um, and I'll share the story with you about LA here in a minute, but going back to the Hong Kong deal. So here I am invest, um, you know, for providing security for this really wealthy Chinese guy in his mid fifties, late fifties, married to a 32 year old Mexican model, um, big old boobs on her, you know, good looking, um, beautiful on the inside, but the ugliest person you'll ever meet on the inside. Oh my God, man. She was horrible, man. Um, and, uh, you know, we all know what that was about. But anyways, so it was a difficult job in that, you know, dealing with the client. Um, yeah. They're just rich people suck. Okay. That's another <laughs> thing. Rich people suck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a reason they're rich. And it's because they're really good at walking over a lot of other people, man, to get there. And, and that's a fact. I've got a lot of rich business partners, rich friends, rich clients. I got one guy. He's a billionaire. Owes me $450,000. Um, yeah, and he's a billionaire, and he screwed me out of $450,000, man. So um, it's kind of left a bad taste in my mouth with these people, and, and the lesson learned out of that is be your own boss, be your own success story. Don't count on none of these other people, man, because everybody will take from you. So I said earlier before the interview, you know, how mean and vile and nasty people really are. I got, some, I got another story on that one, too. So anyways, um, I did this for a while. Um, you know, like I said, it's a, it's kind of a thankless job. You get paid, but you're treated like shit. You know, um, here I am, a guy with a PhD. You know, and I got I got another friend of mine, ready for this. He's a SEAL commander lawyer for Blackwater, and he's a bodyguard with me. And we got this 32 year old client, right? You know, with one fucking live brain cell talking down to us like we're little freaking kids. Right. Like what the hell, you know? So that's what I mean by that. But uh, so I ended up doing all that, and then other things started happening. Um, I had an opportunity to go to Yemen. Uh, we've, you know, we've kind of talked about that in another episode, but basically while I was here, um, 
So the same company I was working for in Hong Kong, they're friends of mine. Um, I worked for them in South Africa, Mexico. You know, I did a lot of stuff for them, contracting as a consultant, security consultant, bodyguards, etc. So, so here's the story. So I go yeah, yeah. right into this one. This was kind of cool. Um, so one night I'm in South Africa, sitting around the pool with a guy, um, the owner. His name, we'll call him AG. And uh, AG's a pretty freaking hardcore, no shit kind of guy, man. Um, he either likes you or he don't. If he don't like you, he'll let you know about it too. Um, and so luckily I was, you know, I was good friends with him, guy, and, and uh, got along just fine with him. So we're in South Africa sitting around the pool one night. And he's like, Dale, he goes, um, he goes, how come you do all these other things? You know, why don't you just focus on security and, you know, you could be really good at that and make a lot of money, you know, why do you do this and do that? Because at the time I was like teaching as a professor for Henley Putnam University. I'm a journeyman. I just travel around doing weird jobs, right? Like going to Singapore and training dogs. <laughs> um, and I told him, I said, well, you know, I said, you know, I said, <laughs> I said, I got a lot of ex-wives out there that need to get paid, you know, <laughs> freaking parasites, man, you know, I'm, I've got to, got to pay them off all the time, you know, I got a lot of kids and shit, you know, and so I said, I go where the work is, I make my money, I said, I'm pretty happy because I get to travel, I get to do different things, I wear a different hat every day, and so it's not so bad, and he looks at me, he goes, man, he goes, what if I gave you $50,000 cash, he goes, would that help you? And I thought about it. I was like, yeah, of course it would help me, but I'm not taking it. And uh, he wanted to give me $50,000 cash because he thought it would relieve some pressure, right? <clears throat> and so that I could focus on just, you know, security, for example. And I said, no, I said, you know what? I said, I can't accept your money. I said, I don't take money I don't earn. And so we kind of got in an argument over the swimming pool, around the swimming pool. And he's like, well, he goes, tell me, Dale. He goes, you've done so much in your life. What's next? What are you going to do next? And I looked at him, I go, I want to be like you. He looks at me like, I go, what? And I go, yeah, I want to be like you. I want to be some rich guy sitting around a fucking pool asking people what they're going to do with their lives, you right. know, and <laughs> giving them $50,000. <laughs> so, you know, it, so we ended up parting ways that night, went to our rooms, and the next morning, his partner calls me to the office, and uh, he goes, hey, AG left uh, this morning, went back home, but, you know, he just put um, $50,000 in your bank account. And I was like, what the hell, man? And so he goes, you can't give it back. We're not taking it back. We don't want it back. He goes, listen, he goes, other people have helped us. Other veterans have come up and helped us when we needed it. And he goes, we want to do the same thing, you know? And uh, I said, well, I appreciate all that. But I said, I don't work for free. So I said, count, count this as paying. You've paid this forward. So next time you have a project, I said, you call me. I'll drop what I'm doing. I'll come here wherever and go to work for you, right? You get your money back. So that wasn't even enough, man. Then he put me on a $7,000 a month retainer for the next six months. I'm like, damn. So I'm making, I'm doing all right. And, um, and so then I leave and I end up going back to Indonesia. I start my security business here. Um, my wife and I are not married yet, but uh, we start this enterprise. And then one day I'm flying back to the U.S. and I get a text message from AG. He goes, hey, man, I need to talk to you about some security-related stuff. This was over a year later, a year and a half later, and I thought, Man, you know, I've got my own security business, conflict of interest. I really wasn't interested at this point. I was excited about starting my own company here. So I get to the States. He texts me again. He goes, I really, really need to talk to you, but I can't talk to you over the phone. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, AGF, you know, I'm him and a ha. And he goes, okay, listen. He goes, I'm going to buy your plane ticket to San Diego. He goes, when you get here, I'm going to pay you $6,000 for three hours of your time. 
I gotta, you gotta listen to me. I shit. Okay. (laughs) It must be important. So I fly out there. He's leaning up against this badass freaking Porsche at the airport. I show up, he hands me an envelope with $6,000 cash. And he says, get in, bitch. <laughs> and, and we take off, right? And uh, we end up in his neighborhood, which was pretty amazing. Um, I mean, he literally he lived next door to Bill Gates and a whole bunch of other people. And I, Holy shit, this guy's rolling in dough. And he was. Um, so that evening we had a, you know, we sat down, we had dinner, and he and his partner told me what the plan was, right? And so basically it was, they had a contract with the Emiratis and uh, basically to take out their HVTs, right? They need a special forces capability, didn't have it. Um, AG promised them that we could deliver this. And so, you know, I'm okay, yeah, Roger, that sounds like a good idea, pretty cool. But, you know, I'm going back to Indonesia in three days and uh, I really didn't want to go. And so he already threw $40,000 cash on the table in front of me. He goes, that's yours, right? And I'm like, look, dude, I go, I said, you I said, you do the first one. I said, I'll come in for the fall on evolution. I just got to go home, you know, see my, my girl and kind of, you know, I'm not, I wasn't ready for this shit, you know? And he goes, no, if I don't, if I can't have you for the first one, I don't need you for the other ones. And so I'm like, damn, okay. I said, all right, okay, okay, I'm in, right? <laughs> so I fly home. I said, I've got to go to Indonesia first, though. So I literally, the next morning, I fly to Indonesia. I see my wife, my girl. Um, I lie to her. I said, look, I'm going to go to the Middle East. I'm doing some consulting, you know, security consulting work, you know, make a little bit of money, be right back. No danger, problem, be right back. Oh, okay. So they tell me don't bring any equipment. You don't need it. It's already provided for you, right? Oh, okay. So I fly, I fly from Jakarta all the way to uh, New York. LaGuardia. Um, I check into a hotel as I'm supposed to. I'm waiting around downstairs in the lounge area, restaurant area, having a beer. And I notice there's a bunch of French dudes walking around. They all look pretty fit, you know, but they're French. And so I get a little suspicious. And then I had to be up in a hotel room around 1030 that night. We all had to meet there. Okay, we all were given instructions at this time, meet in this room. So I show up in there and there's all these French dudes are standing there. There's 11 of us total. Um, you know, AG is partner of SEAL, um, me, and then, uh, the other, uh, the French, they're French foreign legionnaires is what they are. And so we're all standing looking at each other like, who's who, you know, like the movie Ronin. And then, uh, AG's like, all right, guys, here's the play. Here's the mission. Here's the plan. He goes, this is what we're going to go do. He goes, if you're not interested, he goes, you can keep the $20,000 I gave you and just leave right now. And no questions asked, go back home. Like, fuck man. So everybody got 20. 20 grand except for me i had 40 grand <laughs> but i had to tell nobody well there was a reason i got 40 grand and i was about to find that out in a second so nobody quit he goes okay good he goes welcome aboard he goes so and then he points at me and he tells everybody in the room he goes that guy's in charge of everything he's the boss whatever he says goes you do what he tells you to do everything i'm like what <laughs> me <laughs> so you know i don't even know what the hell's going on here right now and i'm in charge right all of a sudden <laughs> of everything and literally everything and uh all right, so the next day, um, we have to meet downstairs uh, in the evening. We get on a bus, um, a bunch of vans, and we go to Teterboro. Uh, it's a private airfo- uh, airport up there, and uh, it tells us to make sure we're wearing all our tactical gear, our uniforms. That's kind of weird. It's a business fucking airport. Everybody's wearing suits, and we show up wearing <laughs> camouflage right. and beards and shit, right? But he had a reason for it, okay? He had a reason for it. 
and the reason was he knew people were watching us. People very high up were watching us. Okay. And so he wasn't, he didn't want to hide anything. He didn't want to give the illusion that we're not up to something. He wanted to make it really clear that, yeah, we're doing this and I'm not going to hide it. So we show up to the airport that night, a G5 shows up. We load it with food and water, our gear, no weapons. Um, and we take off and we fly. I think we did our first fuel stop uh, in Hungary. And, uh, and then we continued on. And so the pilots and the flight attendants, they had no idea where we're going, right? They got their initial grid coordinates. And then in flight from Hungary, we gave them a change of, uh, change the flight plan on. Said, okay, this is your coordinates. This is where you put an airplane down, which was in the desert on a dirt airstrip, completely remote, not even on a map. Like, there, right here's an airstrip on this grid coordinate. Just put your airplane there. And I what? And said, just do it. And he, yes, sir. Be back. They didn't even question it, man. <laughs> so they're like, whatever you guys want, man. You know, uh, we're doing it. So we end up landing in the middle of an airfield. There was, if you want to call it, it was just a strip, just a dirt right, strip. Right. There was nothing there, nothing, um, except one C-130 sitting there uh, with the ramp down engines running. That was the only thing that was sitting there. So we land in the G-5. We unload our shit. We walk over to the, to the ramp. There's a colonel waiting for us as an intel uh, officer. Um, and the Emirati military? And, yeah, Emirati, right? So he's checking the block as we're getting on. You know, we're loading all our shit in the back, and then uh, we take off. And we fly about another four hours to uh, Djibouti. We land, get off, and there's a CH-47 and two H-6 helicopters sitting there, engines running, waiting for us. So we transload into those things, take off, fly about another hour. We end up in Aden, Yemen. Uh, at one of their fobs out there. And so we, you know, at this, at this point, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, 2 a.m., and uh, I asked the intel officer, I go, hey, uh, where's all our gear, all the weapons, all the shit that's supposed to be waiting for us? Because oh, it's on the way. And so they had set up a couple of GP mediums uh, in a containment area within the fob. Nobody knew we were there. They intentionally tried to make sure we were hidden, you know. And so he said, will be here shortly, right? So... This shows up, all these pickup trucks full of garbage, literally fucking garbage, you know, like pieces and parts of weapon systems, um, just shit, man. I mean, like, what the hell? And so they're unloading all this crap, you know, and uh, we got DSHKs with no, no tripods. We've got, you know, we've got no magazines for the AK-47s. We got no links for the PKMs, you know. And, oh, by the way, we're supposed to be getting all U.S. mill equipment, brand new. And they're giving us this thirty-year-old Chicom rusty bullshit, right? <laughs> and uh, and I'm 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 inventorying it, and I'm looking at it, and I realize, ain't nothing we can do with this. Nothing functional. Nothing's operational. So I walk up to him, to the colonel. I go, "Hey, sir," I said, "This ain't gonna work." I said, "We're missing everything, right? We're missing all the pieces and parts." And he he hated the fact that we were coming in to fight his war. Mm -hmm. He hated the fact that they didn't have the capability, right? He he despised us. And I said, sir, I said, well, this is not, you know, this is not going to get it. And he looks at me with his hands on his hips. He goes, so what you're telling me is you can't do the mission. I'm like, no, I didn't say I couldn't do the mission. I killed the guys with a damn spoon, but I can do the mission. I would really like to have some weapons though, you know, where I can shoot from a distance, you know? And, uh, and so I gave him a little, you know, piece of my mind. I confronted him and, and he's like, okay, okay. I said, by the way, where's all my American weapons at? That we're supposed to get, right? I know what he did. He took that money and put it in his freaking pocket. Right, right. 
Yeah, that's what he did, right, little son of a bitch. Um, and he went down to the local bazaar and bought us all this crap, right? And so, anyways, I kind of gave him the stink eye. He got the message. He came and I gave him the shorties list. He came back with uh, the pieces and parts we were missing. Basically, we were just cobbling weapons together and, you know, improvising uh, everything. There were no uniforms, um, nothing, man. So I'm, I'm literally got, you know, a pair of 511s on, some desert boots. Um, I had on a, a, a tank top for, for the gym. I actually had weight training gloves. Those are my tactical gloves, you know. I was, we were making it up as we go, man. We are literally making our own freaking, you know, vests and stuff for ammo and stuff, you know knitting and shit you know it's like are you kidding me so we literally improvised everything we had to go do these operations um because we got no tactical gear they, they just they didn't give it to us and i think it was because he wanted us to fail is what it was right but we, were, <clears throat> we weren't having that so um the and next question how, was okay tar- go ahead how old were you at this point dale so this was uh 2015, 2016. Um, so you basically uh, what six years ago? I'm 59, so I was about 53. Yeah, yes. It's yeah. nice. It's it's nice to know though that a tiger doesn't change its stripes. Dale. Yeah, I, I yeah. find I find that comforting about you. <laughs> <laughs> no man, actually I was leading the charge, man. I was in good shape as anybody there or better. Um, you know, and there was a reason I was in charge mm-hmm. because I, I learned that lesson later on too. It's like okay, now I know why I'm here. <laughs> but uh, so, anyways, uh, we got the target list. Um, it was long, over 40 people on the list, spread across three countries. Um, so we were going to be doing some globe trotting um, to go take these guys out, but they were all HVTs. Uh, it was not a capture mission. It was a kill mission. That was it. Uh, these guys had to go. They're all bad guys. They're all terrorists. Um, they're all associated or affiliated with Al-Qaeda, uh, particularly Al-Qaeda, Arabic Peninsula, ACAP, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, ISIS, Houthis. Um, there were a lot of bad guys there. And, which, which, uh, which three countries? I, I can't say the other two countries. <laughs> okay. Just say they were on the African continent. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> does, so because you're saying like um, AQ Arab Peninsula, did the UAE, which is a fairly, I mean, in terms of Arabic countries, it's like a fairly liberal country. Um, mm. Did did. And I don't mean liberal politically. I just mean liberal in terms of, of like yeah. religion, and whatnot. Yeah. Do do they have a different HVT set than say the United States does? And that their concerns, even though these people are AQ or ISIS, but their concerns are different because these H, uh, high value targets, the HVTs, are operating directly against like the Emirates and in places like that. Yeah. So exactly, they got their own. Their their target list may be different from our target list. Some of them, not all of them. Um, and they had their own agenda. In fact, the reason we got hired by the MOD, because he's the guy that uh, hired us, um, was actually a Palestinian and uh, very prominent guy, not even Emirati, um, but because of a friend of a friend of a friend, he got put into the MOD position. <laughs> um, and so there's, a, there's actually a very interesting story about this guy. On the, his name is Mohammed Dalin. Um, you can look him up on the internet. Uh, very interesting guy. Very cool guy, actually. Um, but very interesting. And, uh, he's, he was not what you would expect. Um, but, um, so anyways, uh, you know, target list was long, spread over three countries. Um, we needed to get this one. They wanted this one guy in particular right off the bat. He's number target number one. And we're like, okay, uh, what's the deal with this guy? And, you know, 
and they explain to us, you know, why he's a threat. Um, okay, he's a he's a shady character. He's he was actually from India. He was not Arabic. He was India, but he was Muslim and he was a pedophile. Um, and he's homosexual. He had all kinds of weird shit going on too. But he was very well trained in trade craft and street craft. So he never put his head down in the same place twice. Um, he had his own security detail. Um, he was being financed, um, as I understand it, by the Muslim Brotherhood and others. He was using Al Qaeda as an action arm. Um, just a lot of weird things going on, right? So supposedly this guy won the Nobel Prize. Blah blah blah. It's all bullshit. Okay, because one of the things I made sure of that I insisted on was any targets that we take out, we got to I got to be convinced this guy's a bad guy and it's just not some little personal agenda. Right. Right. This is got to be a legit target. So we did our due diligence, you know, and we investigated closely. It's like, okay, this guy's he's the real deal. Um, So we green lighted him. Um, But it was interesting was as we're going through this target list, we're, we're developing the first target. Took us a couple of weeks, which actually was pretty fast, considering we had no uh, human uh, human sources. We had nothing to work with. I mean, we're gleaning information off the internet. You know, we're bribing the Emiratis to give us some intel. They were trying to what's the word I'm looking for? They were trying to remain hands off. They wanted to have plausible compartmentalized, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And so we're like, hey, dude, we're never gonna get this done if you're not helping us. You know. So they ended up getting us some sources. Um, you know, we ended up paying them a bunch of money, you know, made a bunch of promises and stuff like that. But uh, in this process, we realized on this list was a guy who was the uh, the mastermind behind the USS Cole bombing. And he was running a madrasa in Aden. And he was running a pipeline for ISIS fighters. This guy was a shithead still, and he was there. And we're like, oh, oh we, we, this, is, this is number one. We're going after that guy first, you know, and he's right down the road. And, uh, and he's really got no security. His house is across the corners, catty corner to his madrasa where he's running this pipeline, you know, for ISIS fighters and stuff. And so we really wanted that guy. Okay. He's the USS Colbaum, you know, mastermind. We were told no. Said no. No, you work for us. This is number one right here. This guy here, you guys can have him later on. <laughs> like, fuck, man. Uh, we really wanted this guy. He would have been an easy target, too. But uh, we, didn't get, we didn't get the shot at him uh, that we wanted. So, um, so long story short, my job was, um, besides, you know, the planning execution, um, I realized really quickly that the guys that were with me didn't know what the hell they were doing. So they had no idea about explosives. They didn't know how to use explosives. Um, in fact, I had to show, actually, I had to show one of the guys was a SEAL, literally how to put an AK-47 in action. He had no idea how to load it and charge it. I'm like, fuck, dude. You know, and so this was a seal too. Um, and, but he was a good guy. I'm not going to take nothing from him. He just didn't know what he was doing. But right. he turned out to be actually one of the better guys out of the bunch because his head was in the right place. Um, the other tur- the other seal was a total turd, though, complete turd. Um, so now I'm training these guys on how to basically set headspace and timing on a 50 caliber machine gun, run PKM machine guns you know, all the weapon systems we have. And then the mission came down. I was like, we might have to hit this guy on the way to the airport. There's only one flight a day leaving Aiden. And, uh, and we had intel that this guy might try to get on that airplane on one of these particular days. And so what we were going to do is ambush him at the airport. Now, what was interesting is the Emirati military occupied the airport. But all the access roads, all the gates going into the airport were manned by Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. 
right? So they control the gates. Right. And, uh, and so we would literally have to drive to the gates, wave at Mr. Al-Qaeda, you know, and then go inside into the compound. But he had one flight a day, and we thought this guy's going to get on one of these flights. So we just started planning, okay, we got to hit him. We picked out the checkpoint location where we're going we to smack him. Um, they thought, well, what if he doesn't come this way? What if he goes that way? And then we thought, okay, let's ambush him in the vehicle. He's running a small motorcade, thin skin trucks. Um, then the question was, can, who can ride a motorcycle? I'll be damned. I'm the only guy that can ride a motorcycle. I said, are you kidding me? I'm the only guy who can ride a goddamn motorcycle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now I'm, you know, I'm doing it all, man. I'm like, what, why, why are you guys even here? I said, right. I might as well just do everything. You know, <laughs> I got to ride the motorcycle. I got to build the IEDs. You know, I got AG on the back of the motorcycle. He's going to hang my IED off the mirror of this truck while we're driving and then vaporize vehicle with the guy in it. Right. So we got all these contingency plans and, and I'm starting to realize really quickly that I'm the only guy who knows what the hell is going on. I'm the <laughs> only guy who's got any tactical experience to execute this thing, you know, and, uh, going back to discovery channel, I guess I am a one man army. So, um, so, so, so anyways, um, so we had all these contingency plans, man. And there's, you know, we would do all kinds of stuff, man. And it kept changing every day because the guy never slept in the same place twice. So we had to keep adjusting the mission profile, right? Okay, now we're instead of doing motorcycles, we're doing helicopters. Okay, we're not doing helicopters, now we're walking, you know? And so, so finally, we, um, we finally got some good intel one night, and we had about an hour and a half to spin up because the guy was staying downtown in an office, um, and he wasn't going to come out. We had eyes on, human watching the guy reporting back to us. We had a drone helicopter up, um, you know, video on the, on the office. We know he was in there. He went in there with his bodyguards um, and his, uh, um, his assistant, and he hadn't come out. So we, we were staged, already ready to go, and uh, that's when we went in. And it was only – it was actually five of us that went in out of the team. And out of the five of us, one of them was an Arab. Um, he's, a, he's one of their majors in the military, and he was just the driver. It's like, look, you just drive. You don't touch guns. Don't play with the fucking radio. Just drive. That's all you got to do, right? And so, and and me and and the AG and the two seals were in the back of this uh, up armored uh, Land Cruiser, and the job was to literally pull up to the office. I was going to get out, put an IED on the building, and bring it down on top of this guy's head. And uh, so that was the basic plan. And so we roll in. It's I think it's about nine thirty at night. Very dark, um, very dark. You had people on the streets drinking chai. You know, very narrow roads, um, very congested. And um, so we go rolling in at about three miles an hour. That was top speed. You know, I literally got, as the car comes to a stop, I've got Al-Qaeda looking in the window trying to see who's inside the window. And I'm putting a muzzle in his face, getting ready to let the air out of him. And um, <laughs> so finally we get in front of the, the office and it's like, go. <laughs> Doors come open. The first guy shot is the driver. The only guy without a weapon, he gets shot in the fucking leg. Um, and then the rest of us bail out. I grab my charge and I run across the street, run in front of the office door. And I tried to open the door first. My gut, my, I was going to try to open the door, throw a couple of hand grenades in there, and then just go in there and shoot everybody. But they had locked the door from the inside because the bodyguards, usually they sat out in front. But at night, they would roll inside. They would lock the doors up and they would sit right behind the, the, the doors, these big steel doors. So uh, I couldn't get the door open. So I knew they were in there. They locked it. And so I thought, okay, the only other choice I have now is the place this uh, IED that I built. 
um, in front of the uh, the door. So the, the charge was, I, I filled an ammo can with C4 and I filled it up with uh, armor plating from an MRAP. So I basically made it the mother of all claymores. And, uh, you know, added some extra honor for the P factor. So I had a little <laughs> nuclear weapon is what I had. And it was all directional. <laughs> so, uh, and so um, I placed the charge. There's a raging gunfight going on right now. Um, and I'm by myself. So for whatever reason, I don't know why, but AG ran up the fucking road like with his hair on fire. And he's shooting it out with people up the street. And he's actually supposed to be with me at the door pulling security for me because I got my hands full. And same thing with the other guy, the other SEAL. He doesn't follow me to the door either. He stays at the vehicle. Um, his excuse was his weapon kept malfunctioning, but he had a spare right next to him. He didn't grab that one. So he didn't follow me over. So I'm basically out there by myself in the wind flapping, you know. And anyways, a, a place to charge. Um, I could not run back to my ex vehicle because, you know, the engagement was just too close. Down. I, run, I would have run right into an ambush. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to run up the street to another vehicle waiting down the road. And, uh, but the vehicle that we infilled in was uh, an up-armored uh, Land Cruiser, a $300,000 car. And so I had already placed an IED in the back of it, an incendiary device. I built it, put it back there, and... Uh, what I was going to do is run it back to my original vehicle. I was going to stop, pull the firing system, and we were going to destroy that Land Cruiser. I don't know why they wanted to destroy it, but they didn't want to bring it out the target. The, our mm -hmm. instructions were leave it there and destroy it. So that's what they want. That's what they get. That's what they're paying for. So anyways, I could not get to the, the charge. So the other SEAL, um, he knew that contingency plan was if I don't make it back, he was to run up and fire the system, and he did. And it's all on video. And uh, the first charge goes off and uh, just wrecks the building. Um, apparently vaporizes the bodyguards behind the doors. And then, uh, and then he pulls the other system and then it goes off. And it literally blew that, that car up and literally burned it to the ground. I mean, there was nothing left of it. I was, I was actually in awe that it actually worked as well as it did because it was literally improvised explosive. I never built one like this before. I didn't know... I just kind of made it up as I went, which was kind of cool. I used, uh, right for this, I used, Net, <laughs> I used Nest Cafe coffee grounds in a jar, uh, half, a, half a liter or half a bottle of gasoline and a quarter block of C4. I cobbled this freaking thing together, put it over the gas tank, and I'll be damned it worked, man. Freaking burned that thing to a crispy critter. Uh, but uh, so we get out. We get out of the mission. And then... Uh, and so all of us were given rank. So the question is, okay, you know, for everybody out there listening, oh, my God, being a mercenary is illegal. You know, I've heard all the bullshit. All right, just shut up. All right, let me just explain what happened here. All right, first of all, it is not illegal to work as a mercenary. Okay, you can go to the State Department website. You as an American citizen can work for foreign countries, okay, a foreign government, as long as that government their policies are in alignment with U.S. policy, okay? The Emiratis are friends of Americans, okay? We're fighting the same global war on terrorism. Boom, all right? There it is. Two, you can join their military, and guess what? They assigned us ranks. They gave us all rank. Guess who the leading, the rankingest current, the rankingest guy there was AG, made him a full bird colonel. He's in charge of the entire Arab forward operating base. He's in charge of the Arabs. And, he just, and guess what? He's Jewish. Yeah. Guy's Jewish. He's a Jewish colonel in their military, giving them orders. So we get back to the to the compound, and uh, you know, fucking, you know, plugging holes and stuff. And 
And uh, AG comes back a few minutes later. He's got a thumb drive. He went to the drone pilot. He goes, I'm the colonel. Give me a copy of that, that drone village. And he got it. And the reason he got it is for insurance. So it can never be said that we're out there as a bunch of renegades on our own. Right. You know, doing this kind of shit. We got proof right here. For, it came out of your helicopter. You know, here's the, here's the footage, right? So it, it was a smart move, man. Um, you know, it, like I said, it was insurance. Um, so then what happens is basically, okay, we're not sure if we got the target or not. Because the next day on the news, the local news, um, his assistant was all wrapped up, you know, and he's on the news going, hi, nana, nana, boo, boo, you didn't get us, you know, but he's all fucked up and the other guys are vaporized. And so we don't know what happened to the principal. And uh, we were told he did get away and he went back to Saudi Arabia, which I kind of doubt that because the Saudis wanted him dead too. So why would you come back to Saudi Arabia, right? right. So he basically dropped off the map. We're not sure what happened. Maybe he went into hiding. You know, maybe I scared the shit out of him, you know, and he decided he wants no more part of it. I don't know. But uh, so we we go back to, uh, um, we end up in Abu Dhabi. We meet with the the, um, the client, and uh, basically we're doing an AAR after action report. This is what happened, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he was happy. And so the contract, if I remember right, the contract was worth $880 million. Okay, the first mission was $800,000. Okay, the first mission was a vetting mission. If we were successful, we would get the rest of the contract. And that's why it was important that I was on the first mission. Right. Because it had, it had to go, right? I tell you right now, had I not been there, they would have fucked up the charges. They didn't know how to build them. They wouldn't have been effective at all. They wouldn't have known how to use half the weapon system. You know, they would have had to go to the MRI and go, hey, can you show us how to, you know, work this gun? You know, that's what I'm paying you for. So none of that was going to work. So that's why I realized, okay, there's my value. Right. That's why they had to have me, right? So, you know, we got, you know, awarded the rest of the contract. And then, uh, and then we had, you know, the follow-on follow -on missions after that. So um, anyways, that happened. And then uh, finally I ended, up, uh, I ended up walking out of the desert. Me and one of the SEALs had enough because the one SEAL that's in charge, I'm not even going to mention his name. He was all fucked up. And uh, AG had to go do something. I said, no, I ain't staying out here. This, this is bullshit. There was a lot of leadership issues that uh, there were, you know, there were very pronounced, man, that really wrecked the whole project. Um, poor leadership, zero leadership. And uh, i give an example. One day, you know, so I'm getting paid all this money as a special advisor. And uh, I noticed that uh, one of the SEALs, the bosses, is laying in the back of the pickup truck sunbathing with no clothes on every day. And he's telling the guys to fetch his coffee and do this and do that, you know. And uh, these are all grown men, right, with families. They're soldiers. They're veterans. And he's telling them to go fetch coffee. And then I realized he's, he's actually um, he's hiding cases of Red Bull in his hooch, fruit, all kinds of fresh stuff. He's, ha he's hoarding it for himself, not even sharing it with the team. Right. I found out about that one day because I had to go in there to get something. I'm like, what the fuck? So I walked up to the truck one day while he's back there, and I go, hey, man. I said, you guys are paying me a lot of money to be your special advisor, so I'm going to go ahead and earn my money right now and give you some advice. And they're, they're looking at me like, huh? <laughs> I go, ready for this? Lead by example. And they're like, and I go, yeah, lead by example. I said, you think this is lead by example? I said, this ain't leading shit. I said, all that Red Bull in your room, that, that's not leading by example. I said, these, these guys here, I said, they could give two shits about your bottom line. When we're out there in a firefight in the street, 
I said, nobody cares about your bottom line, your corporation. All they care about is getting back home. And they're going to remember who took care of them and who didn't. I said, and right now, you fetch, making them fetch coffee while you're sunbathing and they're, and they're working their ass off, ain't holding no water. And, he, and you know what? He, he disagreed with me. He said, oh, I got to disagree. It is a business. Said, you freaking moron. I said, you know what? When we get out there, I said, when the shit hits the fan and they right. got to make a decision, either save me or save you, uh, bye-bye you, because yeah. they're not saving your ass. I'm the guy taking care of them. I'm the guy running interference from constantly, you know, and, uh, and that's my job. I said, but you're paying the paycheck, man. I said, you need to do your part, you know. So there was stuff like that that was going on out there that just, I said, you know, I'm not going to I'm not gonna be a part of this anymore. Um, and I actually left, ended up uh, planes, trains, and automobiles through Dubai, Abu Dhabi. I think I went back to the U.S. and finally went back to Indonesia or Indonesia then the U.S. camera. I was all over the day going place, but, uh, you know, I just decided that uh, I'm done with that part of it. Dale, so, how I'm many... Of that list of 40 names, like how many HVTs down did you get uh, during that contract? Just a couple. Um, what's kind of funny is we had one guy that was the ISIS bomb maker, a very prominent guy, and uh, he was definitely going to get it, man. But uh, we had it all lined up. Um, I built this freaking mega freaking IED for him, special. And, uh, and he was going out every day in the afternoon. We were watching with the drone. In the afternoon, he would go out on the street, and he had a couch on the street, right? And he would sit there and sell drugs, CAC, right? Guys would come by, and he was a drug dealer, too, on top of everything else. And then on the end of his, his compound, he had a garage called the Monster Garage, and he was building metal doors, but actually he was building IEDs in there. Uh-huh. He had all kinds of sealant tanks and stuff like that. And so my job was going to be to blow up this entire monster shop one night, and then we're going to go up to his compound and, and shoot him in his freaking face. Um, just as we were getting ready to do this, he went out to sell some drugs on the street, you know, guy drives by and he was with the, uh, Yemeni's resistance and, uh, boom, but kills him right there, man. Gets, does a job for us. Like shit, you know, <laughs> but it's probably a good thing because, um, it would have been really hard to get in and get back out of there. They had that place locked down pretty good, um, between ISIS and Al Qaeda and the Houthis. Um, he was pretty secure and we were definitely going to be, you know, we were definitely going to be hanging out there trying to get to him but uh we made down a list a little bit and not very far and before i walked away i don't know what they did after that actually know that one of the guys they ended up in uh serbia and one of the guys on the team got rolled up ended up in jail for almost two years um on weapons charges they were you know kind of doing the same thing again as we're doing yemen i didn't have any part of that i walked away but uh um he got out of jail because somebody murdered his uh his attorney at the doorstep of the courtyard. So he lost everything, the entire case against him. And uh, he's actually a pretty famous SEAL. Um, <laughs> they, I don't know, I'm not going to say his name, but uh, he's, a pretty fam- he's a pretty famous SEAL. But uh, he fucked up, and uh, <clears throat> he, got, he got rolled up, and he spent a couple of years in Serbian jail because of that. So anyways, um, yeah, going back to, so, you know, Round and round and round, everything starts happening. I ended up up from there in Los Angeles, um, running. A, so I was protecting a multimillionaire as a starlet in Hollywood. So what happened yeah, was yeah. I was out on the TV show SWAT, right? And uh, so I, I was invited to be on that show. So I'm out there on the set. I get a call from my friend, um, who's oh, you know he's a pretty good guy, man. He's a country western singer. 
he's like, hey, dude, he goes, got a problem. He goes, I got a friend. She's in big trouble. Um, some guy stole over a million dollars worth of diamonds from her. They want to kill her because she wants to go to the police, this, that, that, that. She's very wealthy. She's 31 years old, um, beautiful, never been married, no kids. She's every man's dream, dude. I'm telling you right now, right? So, and, and I don't even know this. I don't know all this about her yet. I just know she's in trouble, and I'm the only guy he'll recommend. And so apparently she already done the Google search and all this shit. He goes, call her and, and work out the, the price. So I call her up, go, hey, you, this is me. What's going on? What do you need? Okay, here's my price. And my price was $2,000 a day plus pass-through costs. I say, you want me to protect you? Two grand plus pay for all my expenses. She didn't bat an eye. Like, really? And so I, I almost kind of said that because I really didn't want to do the job. Right. I know bodyguard work sucks. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I figured if I'm going to do it, it better be worth it, right? So I said, two grand. And then... And then she's like, okay, no problem. And I'm like, really? I said, well, I said, you know, um, I said, I'm on a Hollywood set, so I didn't bring any suits or clothes for this either, you know. I'm not really prepared for this. She goes, don't worry, you don't need any clothes. Oh, okay. Little did I know, she actually meant I didn't need any clothes. I just needed to show up butt naked. <laughs> she was good with that, right? So she, she apparently she'd done all the Google search, watched all my movies 10 times over, you know. I didn't know any of this, right? I'm like, okay, all right. And then she asked me what my so clothes size were, shoe size, I gave it to her. I ended up flying to LA, and so I had somebody else with me. I had a female with me that I had met, a young girl. And uh, I go, hey, by the way, I got a friend with me, you know? I said, you know, can I bring her with me? And she's like, well, yeah, of course, you know, bring her with you. I go, really? I said, okay, cool, I can use it for like counter surveillance, surveillance type stuff, right? <laughs> you, you can't make this shit up. So I show up, and at the airport, she's got a limousine waiting for us. Um, we go to her, uh, where she lived very upscale. Um, the apartments in this particular building she was living in, uh, the low end was $15,000 a month. The high end was $70,000 a month. Um, it was all the rich and famous people living there. Right. So we show up, she's waiting for me all giddy and everything. And then, uh, and then, so, you know, we get settled in. I, I got my own apartment. She gives me an apartment for $15,000 a month, fully stocked with everything. Not only that, she bought all my clothes for me. I didn't know that. All my Under Armour, everything's laid out for me, you know, slippers and hiking shoes and T-shirts. I'm like, damn, man, you know, and, uh, and so I said, okay. So I told the, the gal I was with, I said, listen, I'm going to be really busy for a while. I said, so, you know, she was actually, she was from, not from the United States. And I said, look, I said, since you're here, Enjoy the vacation. Go hang out in Hollywood. Just see the sights. You know, don't mind me. I'm doing my thing. And uh, so she was good. And so I end up, you know, telling the clients to listen, all right, I'm here to protect you. I'm going to go over some security stuff, protocols, do's and don'ts, patterns of life, blah, 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 blah. You know, we're even do some defensive tactics, you know. And uh, so it goes pretty good, right? And little do I know, she's like falling in love with me. I didn't know that. And, uh, and so it got kind of started getting really weird. Like we would go out for dinner every night and she would spend $1,500 every night on dinner. Um, she ordered everything on the menu times 10. She's like, whatever you want times 10, <laughs> you know, but I'm like, what? And then I'd be like, no, I'm going to go stand over here by the door and pull security. She goes, oh no, you're not. She goes, you're going to sit right here next to me. I said, yes, ma'am. You're paying the bills. All right. So it, it, it turned into that. And, uh, and then it turned into like her sitting on my lap. It got really unprofessional, 
after a while. And I'm trying to keep my professional distance. <laughs> but she's making it really, 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 really hard, man. You know? <laughs> and so then I meet all her friends that live in this building. They're all billionaires. Um, they're just they're just hardcore liberals, right? So every day, she never worked. She owned a company. Now and then we drive to the company, you know, and she'd check on things, okay? And then we go back to her where she stayed but everybody would hang out on the bottom floor it had the swimming pool the bar and it's the lounge area and that's where we hung out every day all day long for months and uh she would order tons of food and pizza and this and that and all those uh, guests the residents would come down and we'd all be talking and no they would be talking i couldn't stand these assholes right they're you know, it was always a Trump bashing session, right? It was always a Trump bashing session. I'm like, get the hell out of here. And then they're like, you mean you were in the army? You were a veteran? Yeah, that's what they look like? Wow. You know, it's like I'm like a puppy. Like, what? That's what veterans look like? Because I never met one before, right? right? And then they, then they want to ask me some questions about the military. And I'd start to answer them. And then it just cut me off. And then they start talking about, there's only four things they could talk about. Wine, uh, hotels. Uh, food and other women's dress, how they dress. That was it. That was the four topics. That's all these people can talk about because that's all they know. Well, right? Dale, if, so- if any of your attractive billionaire female friends are interested in a veteran male concubine, <laughs> you, you feel free to pass them my digits. I mean, I'm here and I'm ready to work. I'm ready to work. Well, oh and, and he, he lives in Brooklyn and he went to Columbia, so he can like, he can like fit into that, that, Sort of liberal. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I got a foot in both worlds, man. I can do it. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, man. It was uh, it was really frustrating because um, they couldn't talk about anything else because they didn't know anything else. I was literally like the first veteran they ever met. I might as well have been a puppy, you know? Like, yeah. oh, wow, it's a cute little. That's what they look like, you know? Yeah. And uh, and I was like, what the fuck, man? So uh, and uh, and I was like, what the fuck, man? So um, you know, and I and I would tell my client you know like look you know she would ask me a question in front of everybody and i said look i don't talk politics i'm not talking religion oh no no it's okay it's okay and i remember they asked me this question one time about uh homosexuals in the military and i had an experience back in 82nd when i first went in in 1982 with a gay guy that was literally uh, everybody got drunk one night he went into this one dude's room and gave him a blowjob while he was sleeping the guy wakes up loses his shit you know and and uh, we ended up with a big battalion, you know, hand-to-hand combat session. Everybody was fighting because we were the recon guys, and they were, you know, now we're the gay recon guys. And, you know, it just got really crazy, right? And so I'm starting to explain to her what the problem was, you know, with, you know, with homosexuals, especially in the rank of infantry guys, when something like this happens. And, uh, and I told her how we were literally combat effective, ineffective for over a month. And people would get an article 15, all because of one guy. He literally pulls this guy's underwear down while he's sleeping. He's drunk and he wakes up and he's getting a blowjob from this guy. Um, and so they were like, oh, the, the, all the, everybody was sitting there going, oh, oh my God, that's so uncomfortable. I, I got I to gotta go. I go, yeah, you got to go because you want to hear the damn truth, you know? It was always that kind of stuff, you know? And these people just started making me sick. And then I kept asking my client, I go, listen, how much longer do you need me for? Because you know, we was tracking down the jewelry. She was in, there's, there were some gangs in, out of Chicago that were involved in this. Um, there's, it, it's going to be, when I write the story, it's pretty interesting who the characters were. Some of them were very famous, like, damn. Uh, one of them was a, a billionaire, a British guy from London who's a billionaire. He sat on a bunch of boards. 
Um, he was actually banging this hooker, this black chick, a high-end call girl. She, she ended up working her way into this building, passing the background checks, um, and ended up stealing all my client's jewelry on, based on a, on a lie, which was tied to this billionaire. Basically, I, I go from being a bodyguard to the fixer now, to the investigator. You know, so I'm now sitting, you know, I'm calling this guy up, go, hey, I need you to meet me at Starbucks tomorrow morning at 07, you know, across town LA. He meets me and, and I'm waiting for the guy and, and I'm playing, you know, let Jeff with him. And I'm like, hey, listen, my client's really, really angry. Um, we know that, you know, your girlfriend, no, no, I'm like, go, yeah, you were banging her, so it doesn't matter, she's your girlfriend, she used your name, stole all his jewelry, and my client's getting mad because she can't get it back, the police won't help her, so she's going to go to LA Times and tell the story, which is going to include your name, right? And you're sitting on this big-ass board, right, because I already know this from talking to some other very wealthy people, I said, this ain't going to go well for you, you know, and he was really uncomfortable, I said, now, if I was you, what I would do is I would probably just give her the money and sign a non-disclosure agreement and be done with this bullshit, because you're married and you got two kids in, in the England, and uh, I had him really freaking squirming in his seat, you know, and so he agreed, he's like, no, you know what, you're right, you're right, you're right, let me talk to my lawyer, I go, now, that's the smart thing to do, sir, so he leaves, by the time I got back to my client's apartment, um, he already talked to his lawyer who talked to her lawyer. Basically, they painted this picture that I was a thug, right? You say you're thugs over, blah, 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 blah. And I go, good. That's exactly what I wanted <laughs> right. to think. I'm a thug, right? <laughs> so, so it actually worked, right? And so they wanted to settle for uh, $250,000. And I knew she was not going to go for that. And she's like, no, not no, but hell no. I said, you probably ought to take the two fifty because you're not going to get the million. I said, this guy's going to jump on the next thing, smoke, and he's going to be gone. You're not going to get him. The yeah. billionaire. He didn't even steal it, but I said, you, you lost all your ability to leverage all this shit, you know? And uh, she was stubborn, right? So she was worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, but this jewelry she had on, she was wearing it for a jeweler, basically an advertising. Mm -hmm. Right. So anytime the jewelry leaves the jewelry store, it's no longer insured off the property. So it was stolen off the property. So guess who's liable? Right. My client. She's right. got to shit a million dollars <laughs> for diamonds. Right. And so that was the problem. She didn't want it, you know, and then there's all this other stuff was involved with the trust fund and her family and, and how that's going to bode and this and that, you know. And so, um, so finally, you know, we get, we get through most of all of this, right? I realized nothing's going to happen. There was more, it had to do with uh, Floyd Mayweather, had to do with Las Vegas fights and all kinds of crazy stuff happened there. This girl shows up in Las Vegas wearing all the diamonds. On top of that, I've got the FBI engaged, the CIA. I got the I got everybody, the marshals from California to Chicago to Las Vegas engaged to, to run this chick down, man. And uh, she was really cagey, man, really good and and beating beating the system, man. All the traps that I laid for, she yeah. circumvented them, got away from it all. But uh, finally, I just told the client, I said, "Listen, man, how much long you need me for? You know?" And she goes, "I need you forever." I go, ha, 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 no, really, how long are you need me? She said, no, I, I need you forever. And I realized, ah, oh, shit. So, you know, this is, this is happening, man. And they got really bizarre, you know. Hey, uh, I need you up in my room at 2 o'clock. I need to talk to you about something. Yes, ma'am, on the way. Where you at? I'm right here in the bed, no clothes on. I need you to sit right here. I got to talk to you about something. I'm like, oh, God, no. You know, this is not, you know, I'm thinking I'm not going to get paid if I keep doing this, you know. And, right. Uh, um, finally, finally, one day I just said, listen, I got to go. I said, I got to move on. I said, she wanted to get married. She fell in love with me. I'll be honest with you. Any other guy, you know, would have been a millionaire overnight. And she was really attractive. 
um, beautiful, man. Very smart, very personable. She had everything going for her, everything, man. And uh, I guess with maturity and with age, you know, you get a little bit smarter. And uh, you start thinking with this head and not the other head. And I realized that, you know, um, you know, I got other things I want to do with my life. And I don't want to mooch off of anybody else. I don't want her money. I don't want to be around her friends. I told her, I said, three months, we'll kill each other. I said, that's just how it is. I said, it's all cool now. But three months, I said, you won't stand me. I won't stand you because um, you're friends. I said, so I'm going to leave tomorrow morning. And so in the morning, I show up to her apartment and say goodbye. She got the limo waiting for me. And she begs me one more time. She goes, please go with me to uh, – she wanted me to go to um, – uh, god damn it. It's a resort on the, on the – uh, out in the desert she goes go with me stay with stay with me for the day and for the night tomorrow i'll put you on a private jet and fly home and you know end the story and i'm like for what i said we're gonna go there and we're gonna do it like rabbits and i said tomorrow morning i'm still getting on the airplane i said nothing's gonna change you know right. and uh, and i did i walked away right there and i never looked back um and i i have no regrets you know whatsoever but I got to tell you, any other guy would have jumped all over it. And maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I'd have jumped all over it too, different circumstances. But, uh, you know, sometimes you realize what's more important in life. And it's not always money. It's not other people's money. It's not even a beautiful woman. Sometimes, you know, your own sovereignty, man, your own, you know, you that is all that matters. Your happiness, what, you know, what, and what? how you achieve that is your, you know, to you. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Dale, I think what you're telling us is that you will never take the easy way regardless of, uh, like, you know. You're... I could have, and I didn't. I could have, and I didn't, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she, you know what she gave me? So she's like, look. She goes, I need you here for another 30 days. Here's my BMW 750 Li. She gives me a brand new BMW 750 Li. And she turns around and buys a black one. She gives me the white one. She knows I like them, you know. Yeah. She goes, this yours. And I'm like, oh, my God, man. So she just gives me this brand-new BMW 750Li. She's throwing it all at me, you know, $1,500 dinner every night, you know, $15,000, you know, apartment. Um, you know, it was amazing. I'll say this. She was a good girl. Um, you know, she just got caught up in something. She, you know, she's lived her whole life, a life of you know, the rich and famous. Right. Right. So yeah. she hasn't been exposed to street thugs. You know, she hasn't been exposed to this kind of crime. And suddenly she became victimized by it. And then all of a sudden she meets a guy like me, you know, that comes along that, you know, I got on this and she's used to, you know, the skinny guy jeans, you know, skinny jean right. guy, and, you know, and, and these, you know, beta males. And all of a sudden I come along. Right. And I'm actually not even interested other than doing my job. And that probably, Draw her even crazier, you know, and so right. so that's how this whole thing started, just spinning out of control. So, um, so the bodyguard, if I had, that was probably the only bodyguard work I actually enjoyed. I had a lot of fringe benefits, obviously, um, and it wasn't really like it was real and it was serious. I mean, I was I was packing, 
Um, I was brought armor. I, I talked to people in the intel services. They all agreed. They said, listen, whatever that guy says, believe it. He will do it. Yeah. This guy is no joke. He's a felon many times over. He was a gang leader. Um, he got out and became a life coach, which was kind of funny, right? Because I'm actually a life coach. Now, he, he's calling himself a life coach, you know, but he's actually a thug. Yeah. He tend to be a life coach, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and he's dangerous. He was that's really dangerous. A, I mean, that's something that, that isn't really being reported on a lot in the news, but like that's a massive problem in LA right now is that wealthy people are like they're being targeted coming out of stores. Like, the, yeah. like it, it's, it's a serious problem in LA right now that's not really being reported on. Yeah, no. And you know what? I'm, I was living it with her. Um, it was just for her, it was just, you know, make driving her crazy, man. She didn't know how to, how to deal with any of this stuff, you know, and she's looking at me like help. Yeah. You know, I'm like, shit, you know, what, what am I going to do? Um, yeah. I can't even find these guys, you know, um, but the bodyguard work, you know, that was, that's another story. Um, it's coming out in my book, more detail. And, uh, I, I have to protect the, uh, the innocent, course you know i'm not going to mention her name or location things sure. like that but i'll tell right. the story it's gonna be pretty cool uh, i get a lot of guys that contact me that are interested in doing bodyguard work and uh they want to know what it's like to get into that world how to get into that world and it looks sexy you know the movie the bodyguard with kevin costner and whitney houston i did it but 10x um yeah but it's it that's hollywood man and yeah. that's not the real world Real yeah. world, it sucks. Yeah, people are dicks. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. You're, I mean, especially when you're coming from a special operations background, like you're looked down upon. Your judgment isn't trusted. You have to pretend your yeah. clients are funny when they're not. They're smart when yeah. they're dumb. I've talked to guys who've done like EP jobs for like Gulf State, you know, millionaires' kids, billionaires' kids, like horror stories. I, I, I've horror done, stories. I've done that too. And my <laughs> advice is never. Never seek to be a bodyguard. Seek to be a person who needs bodyguards. Like yeah. being a bodyguard is is like being, it's like it's like being a bathroom attendant. Basically, you you yeah. you know. So it, here's, I'll tell you a quick story. This sure. horrible. happened to me in Paris. So I'm, I'm with this woman, right? Her, her and her husband. She's the Mexican chick. Um, she's got this. I mean, she's just very eccentric, man. She had a pink. A uh, Pepto Bismol pink Phantom Rolls Royce, right? This thing was insane. Hundred carat diamond rings coming out of fucking, you know, the hood ornament and shit, you know. I was like, damn. But uh, we were we were in Paris, and uh, <clears throat> she and I. So she wanted to go shopping. So all her friends were gay guys, right? She hardly had. I never saw around any women. Um, I don't know. Maybe the gay guys didn't threaten her, but anyway, so always shopping, you know, and they're eating lunch and they're doing this. And I'm standing at the bar going, Jesus Christ, can we leave now? And so I remember one day we're, we're on the street corner and I called the, for the limousine and she's facing the street on the sidewalk, facing the street. I'm standing behind her about 10 feet facing her, watching her back, looking for the vehicles coming. And I kind of just got a, you know, a tactical position there. And I noticed this guy's walking past me. He looked like he was maybe from Libya or something like that. Um, and he's smoking a little cigarette. He's got these little beady eyes like a little rat, you know. And he's, and he's looking back. And he's, he's eyeballing her purse. She had this big, pink Louis Vuitton purse, right? Big-ass thing, man. Um, and so she's holding it. And she's wearing a fur. She's got diamonds all over. She's worth like $10 million just standing there, right? And so and he's, and he's sizing her up. 
He's smoking a cigarette. He's walking back. It doesn't see me standing in the back. Right. I'm kind of standing there watching. And he's going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, I see he finally gets the nerve up. He's going to rob her, right? And he throws the cigarette down. He starts to make the move. And then I step forward. And he sees me. And I look at him. I go, don't do it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, it, and he looks at me. He goes, oh, oh you know, like this. You know, Habibi. And he walks away. Right. And I said, I don't say nothing to the client. She has no idea this is going down. Right. I just saved her ass. Right. And uh, the limousine shows up. We get in a vehicle. We drive back to the Four Seasons We get out. And there's like six French dudes standing on the corner. Right. You know, they're all standing in the Four Seasons. You know, you could tell they're, you know, guys got money and stuff. They're wearing their trench coats and they're talking in French. Blah, 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 blah. And they're talking about where they're going to go party or bar, you know, whatever they're going to do. Right. And they're shooting the shit. The door opens up. She gets out. She's got legs to kill. She's wearing this mini skirt, you know, biggest boobs, you know, and it's like she gets out and they're like, whoa, I did all dialing in on it. And I'm trying to get out of the vehicle on the other side. And so I'm coming around the corner. They don't see me yet. And they're looking at her and I can tell they're getting ready to say something to her. Right. Come on to her. And here I go again around the back of the car. I'm like, don't fucking do it, man. You're going to get me in trouble. Don't do it. And they look at me like, oh, okay, okay. Like, whew. And we go inside and uh, she stops me and she goes, she goes, did you see those men? Did you see the way they were looking at me? Blah, 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 blah. She's pissing and moaning me because they're checking her out. I'm like, yeah, ma'am. I said, yeah, but they didn't say nothing to you. That's right. Cool. They, they didn't looked, threaten you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't do anything. Right. It's just, I'm going check you out. Right. So she goes up to the room. I go to my room. Next thing I get a phone call from the old man. Don't ever let anybody disrespect my wife like that again. I'm like, what? You know, what am I supposed to do? Right. You know, beat the shit out of these dudes. Right. Checking her out, you know? Right. You know, right. tell her to wear a burka next time. Right. Don't right. look at her, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, uh, but it was that, it was always that kind of stuff. Right. Always that kind of, this guy literally expected me to just beat the fuck out of people. Right. For looking at his wife, right? And, right. Uh, and, and, all, and I was actually the smallest of the bodyguards. I was six foot, about 220. You know, I was pretty yoked, man. I was about 5% body fat. And uh, and I was the smallest guy. All the guys were bigger than me. I hired them all. They were all big dudes and have bald heads. They were yeah. tail clones. <laughs> you know, just different colors and different nationalities. Yeah. And uh, But he really wanted that. He Everywhere we went, he wanted us to be flexing because we weren't, we weren't carrying weapons. And, uh, and every time we would go to like, he would, his wife always wanted to go dancing, right? He's an old dude. He didn't want to go dancing, but you know, he had to keep her happy. If he wanted to get those drawers, he better keep her happy. So we'd go to a bar and she'd be out there on the dance floor dancing. I'd have to stand on the dance floor next to her while she's freaking dancing, keeping all the guys away from her because they all want to rub on her and shit, you know? And then they'd go over and harass the old man because he's a little Chinese guy, you know? And then I got to go over there and, you know, interfere, get back, you know, you know, leave the boss alone, you know, it's like. All night long, you know, doing this kind of weird shit, you know. It, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> but, uh, it, yeah, it's the worst, man. It's it's yeah, it's it, not. And fun, it's, man. it's really it's, bad when like they want to start shit with other people, and you have to like intervene because yes. they're talking smack. She did that all the time, man. She would actually start trouble with other <laughs> women and men, and look at you like do something. <laughs> Like you're a pit bull, get in there. Yeah, yeah. We, we were driving to the office one day, and she was in her pink phantom right and she was in front of me i was in the follow car the road was really congested her her office was about 100 meters down to the right and so being the kind of the way she is right she just ah, like and gets out of the car grabs her purse and starts, starts walking down the sidewalk and uh i'm like fuck so i jump out of the car i'm trying to keep up with her 
and there's a guy leaning up against a light post, right? Just kind of leaning up against, looking at his phone. And she walks right up to him and karate chops his arm. Chakoom. <laughs> and he fucking falls over. And she just walks right past him. And he's like looking at her like, what the fuck? And I come walking in behind him and go, hey. I said, yeah, right, right. Hey, yeah. bitch. <laughs> yeah. so, and he looked at me like, okay. I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because I don't want to be out there in the street fighting a guy because that's the kind of shit she's doing all the time, you know? Right. Damn. Um, but uh, I had, I've done a lot of bodyguard work, and it's always uh, <laughs> it's always an adventure, you know. Can, and, uh, uh, it can, requires, can it requires you tell, maturity. Can you tell us the uh, the Singapore story? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm writing a bunch of books, right? So mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, after I wrote American Badass, you know, I thought that was it. You know, the sun was setting on my on my life. You know, all the cool stuff was over. But it actually just started, man. You know, we talked about Yemen already, L.A. Hong Kong. Um, so then what happened was, so here in Indonesia, my wife and I own, I own a security company. As I mentioned earlier, prov- uh, providing explosive detector dogs, patrol attack dogs for all the venues and stuff around here. And uh, so I ended up going to Singapore to meet another guy, a friend. And he goes, hey, I want you to meet this guy. So I meet this guy. This guy is a um, He's in the, in the shipping business, right? Very wealthy guy, very wealthy in his forties. Um, you know, he's from India, but you'd never know it. He, you would you would think he's American. Everything about him said American, right? Um, everything. So um, he's like, "Hey, man, I got this big ass German Shepherd. You know, I bought it for my kids. You know, and uh, he goes, I like to have him train. Very trained dogs. Would you be willing to come over here and train my dog for me?" I said, "Okay, you're playing." You know, are you paying? I'm playing. So, so I ended up flying back and forth, going to Singapore to train a guy's damn dog for him. He lived in Sentosa Island, which is like Hollywood. Um, guy was very wealthy, Rolls Royce, Lamborghinis, you know, um, married, um, two kids and, uh, and the dog. And so he wanted me to come over and train the dog for him. So I'd go over there for like at a week at a time, hang out, you know, in Singapore, go, go to his house two, three times a day, spend about 10 minutes training the dog. And then I was off on my own in Singapore, hanging out. How cool is that shit? Um, and I, was, I did that quite a bit. Kept coming back and forth, kept coming back and forth. <clears throat> um, so one day, uh, I'm walking with him and his son. His son's like nine years old. His daughter's about 12. His wife is Iranian. I thought she was actually Russian, um, but she was, it turns out she was Iranian. And uh, so he and I are walking and we're walking with the dog. We're going down to the, to the harbor. Um, and uh, he goes, hey, man, he goes, you still doing security stuff? I said, yeah. He goes, I might need some help. Okay, what you need? So he tells me this story, right? So he's got this Instagram account. Um, and he's, he's, he loves watches, right? So he's always showing off all his watches on Instagram. You know, millions of dollars worth of watches. And so one day, apparently, this hot chick on Instagram, you know, starts chatting him up. He starts chatting her up, you know, she's in another country. And, uh, but nonetheless, you know, they're chatting each other up. I'm, I'm sure there were dick pics and stuff floating around, but, uh, it kind of escalated in this thing, you know? And, uh, <clears throat> so turns out over time, this chick on the other end is actually a dude, right? Which is probably part of a syndicate. And, uh, this was a setup. And so now they've got, you know, all these compromising text messages, pictures, things like that, you know. And uh, so then they can't reach out to his wife and go, hey, you, this is us. 
um, your, you know, your wife's, your husband's been flirting with this woman on Instagram, you know, getting pretty out of hand, blah, blah, blah. We have more information. We've got an entire portfolio if you want to see it, but you know, you got to buy plane tickets. We got to come to you. We got to hand it to you. You got to pay us. This is what the cost is going to be. You good? So, you know, she's thinking, oh yeah, my rich husband's cheating on me, you know, and I'm going to get, get his ass. So, um, so she buys this guy's ticket, one guy. Um, she meets him at the airport. The guy goes and gets his baggage out of baggage claim. He's got a knife in the bag. He pulls the knife out, puts it in his pants, comes out in baggage claim. He meets her, puts the knife in her side, takes her over to the ATM machine. She cleans out the ATM machine. She's wearing a multi-million dollar Cartier with all kinds of diamonds on it. He said, I'll take that too and all the money, and I'll take your cell phone. <laughs> and basically just robs her right there, right? So, so – he leaves. She thinks he left, but he didn't. He actually stayed overnight in a hotel. Well, guess what? She didn't put a passcode on her phone. Didn't put a passcode on the phone. Come on. Really? So he goes back to the room. He goes to the phone. He's got all the kids' phone numbers, husband's phone number, husband's contacts, phone numbers, client's phone numbers, her phone numbers, alternate phone number. He's got everything, everything on this phone. And he shoots a text message says, tomorrow morning, meet me at this corner on this ATM machine. Don't be late and be alone. She shows up again. Here we go again. Same old rodeo. Like a knife in the side, go to the ATM machine, empties it out, takes whatever else he can take off her, and he disappears. So she still hasn't told anybody. Um, you know, and so he go, the other guy goes back. He's actually, um, so he's Iranian, but he lives in Turkey, okay, um, with a network in Russia a lot. All right. So and I know all this for a reason. So he goes back. He starts messaging the kids, send them video. He's holding a gun. He's holding a knife. You know, he's going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, he's threatening the kids. All right. And basically the old man goes, what's going on? And finally the wife says, hey, this is what happened. They go to the police. They check the camera. Sure shit. It's all true. Right. But they can't get this guy because he's in another country. They can't extradite him. So when he comes back, we can arrest him. Otherwise, no show. And I said, you know, I said, you know what's happening, right? I said, this guy's threatening your kids, threatening you. He's going to call your clients. He's got compromising pictures. And I said, this is not over. I said, he'll never come back because he knows a warrant out for his arrest. But he's going to send somebody else in his stead. Right. And you won't know who it is right. until it's too late. They're going to threaten you. They're going to want money. And if you don't do it, they're going to hurt you or your kids. And so you're fucked. And he knew it, right? And I knew it. I knew the play. And, uh, and so he's like, can you help me? I said, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> money, money, though, but, you know, I ain't doing this shit for free, you know? And, uh, and so that turned into, um, okay, a phased approach. Um, I got to be careful what I say. But uh, it turned into a phased approach. I contacted a guy, he's a German, he's, an, he's a private investigator, he's got a military background, um, good dude. I've actually been working with him since then on some other projects. And uh, he was very well connected, very well connected. I told him what the problem was, told him, gave him an idea who the guy was. We had that information off the Instagram. Um, we had some other sources I was able to tap into. We knew who the guy was, we knew where he was. So now what we had to do is tap in the local resources to PID him, 
um, track him down. We had him. We had we literally had um, uh, cameras from streetlight cameras uh, of this guy in his car with his Mercedes license plates to include. He's wearing a damn watch he stole from the wife. Cartier, he's got it. <laughs> so, you know, it's like damn, you can't. You know, wow. And so, anyway, so the the mission was all right. First of all, proof of concept. I show. I'll show you that we can find him. That we can get to him. But then, you know, then there's the next part parts of this thing. You got to you got to pay for everything, right? You know, but the first one's just proof that we did it. We can do it. Second part is, um, you know, the deployment phase, and then the employment phase execution. Did I say execution? No, the employment phase. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta watch what I say, right? So, um, so, anyways, um, that was it. Was a phased approach, right? And so, basically, it required the only way you're gonna get to this guy is you gotta get to this guy, and and you gotta get to this guy with all the stuff, get it back, and make sure that he never does anything like this again, because start figuring out he belonged to a bigger syndicate there's a syndicate out there there's lots of not that this is what they do right internet scams and they don't fuck around man they look they will fly around the world to to complete their mission man and they right. they don't care man so anyways uh all that happened uh the details will be in the book um uh, i don't want to say too much because it could be misinterpreted what actually happened, what didn't happen. But, <laughs> Misconstrued. Uh, those are the kind of, yeah, and these are the kind of things that have happened to me, you know. That here I am minding my business, training a guy's dog in Singapore, and next thing you know, I'm like, what? Going head to head with fucking Iranians. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's like, wow. So anyways, um, yeah, it never ends, man. It never ends. Um <laughs> You know, I, I mentioned a, early story, a story earlier as well that happened to me in Bali when I came back with the with the, the military and people trying to arrest me and ISIS. There's literally a, there was an ISIS cell here. Um, you know, they were I, I believe they were targeting me and my business partner. But uh, it's like it never ends. I told you my friend right uh, earlier before the show, Dean. He's uh, he's making a movie in. Uh, not a movie, a TV series in the Philippines. I think this is year number three. He called me about five days ago, asked me if I could come to the Philippines. One, help him with security. Um, he feels threatened. But two, he wants me to have a major role uh, on the show with him. And uh, and the story is called, it's called uh, Something in Paradise. I think it's almost paradise. almost paradise. Yeah, that's it. With Dean yeah. Kane. Yeah. Uh, or not Christian Kane, I mean. Christian Kane. And, uh, and so... He's a DEA agent, you know, he's medically, you know, discharged. He decides I'm going to live in the Philippines in paradise, just live on the beach, chasing, chasing, chasing women, having a good time. And all of a sudden he finds himself rolled up in this, with the mob and the syndicate and all this crime shit. And I'm like, you know what? That sounds like my damn story. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's the, it's the same damn story, you know, except mine's in Bali, man. He is in the Philippines, you know. Um, but uh, I don't look for this stuff. It just happens. You know, it just shows up. Um, there was another story I didn't, I didn't really delve into, and that was uh, Dubai. Um, I was approached by an American who lost his visa. Um, so what happens, like in the Middle East, is if you owe money to anybody there, banks, the government, you're in any kind of debt, what they will do is take your visa, strip you of your passport so you can't leave the country. They call it a velvet cage. You can't do anything. You can't walk work you can't leave 
you're just there until you pay your debt back. You know, how are you going to pay your debt back if you can't work, you can't leave? That's up to you to figure out. Otherwise, you're not going nowhere. You're going to live in a hot box for the rest of your life. That's what it takes. So I had a guy approach me, American, um, interesting fella, um, former infantry guy, the um, black guy. And he just one day just said, I'm going to move to Dubai and open up an HVAC company and a deep drilling company. And 11 Bravo infantry guy. And he does this. I'm like, damn. And he was worth millions, right? And he's very successful. And then he had some medical issues with one of his kids. He owned the hospital a lot of money. And then 2010 is when, you know, they had to bust in, in uh, the Middle East. Everything went under financially, right? So suddenly he found himself owing lots of money and he ain't got it. And they stripped him of his passport. His wife and kids got out of country. He didn't make it out. So he'd already been there for like five years when he met me one day in a bar. I was going to get something to eat. And I walk in. I'm wearing my yellow python cowboy boots. And uh, he noticed, he recognizes the boots. He recognizes me from social media. Comes over to me. He goes, hey, are you, you know, Dale Comstock, you know? And I'm always like, why? Who wants to know? You know, okay, Fender Folk, okay, friend. <laughs> so he's like, uh, you know, hey, I follow you in the booth, blah, blah, blah. I guess it's bullshit, you know, got to talk. But he didn't tell me his dilemma yet, right? And he's, we exchanged phone numbers. I go back to Indonesia. A couple months later, he texts me. He said, hey, man, are you coming back? I said, yeah, I'm going to be back here soon, you know, because I'd like to meet. So we meet, and uh, he tells me a story, right? He's been living there for five years, can't get out. He's like, can you get me out? So, like, get me out of country. The problem is all the neighboring countries have laws of reciprocity, like Qatar, you know, they'll turn you back in, right? Mm -hmm. You can't get out. It's, so there's only really one way out. You can do the long walk through the desert and hope to God you never get compromised, but you still got to go somewhere or you go via the ocean somewhere. Right. And um, so I told him I could help him, but you know, it's going to cost money. You know, I'm doing this out of my pocket. And so, um, there was a lot of, lot of issues with getting a guy out over the ocean. Um, so I would need to be able to take him by boat at least 500 miles. That means I need a big goddamn boat that can hold a lot of fuel, right? Which costs a lot of money. So it gets worse and worse and worse, right? But I said, so I finally convinced him, okay, we got any buddies that need to get out too? I don't care. If four nationals, you know, you got four or five guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you guys all chip in and it'll be a lot easier to get out. I had a pretty good plan too, man. Uh, it was a really good plan. Um, I had to do a lot of secret scroll stuff because one thing about the Emirates, if you go to Emirates, Dubai or Abu Dhabi, anywhere over there, you'll never see a cop. You'll never see a cop. They don't need cops. You know why? Because they got one hell of an informant system and they got CCTV camera everywhere. Uh -huh. Right? Everybody's an informant. Everybody gets a blue chip if they rat you out and everything's on camera. So it's pretty damn secure over there. It's real secure. And you know, somebody's watching. They're always watching. I show up one night. I go to this bar and I'm there with a bunch of chicks and they're, you know, and I got my book. And all of a sudden, about 30 minutes late, this dude shows up, sits down next to me. He goes, Hey, how you doing, Dale? I go, Who the hell are you? He goes, Well, you know, I'm with immigration. I'm with this and that and that and that. He goes, How about tomorrow you and I meet for lunch? Okay. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I was like, hey, dude, I'm just trying to get some drawers and sell them my book, you know. It's like, we'll, we'll talk tomorrow. I go, yeah, I'll see you. I'll see you there. And, you know, of course, I never went saw them, but uh, they're good, man. They're really good. Um, so I, everything I had to do over there had to be under the radar, you know, and I'm always got to be super, super careful. Um, 
So anyways, that turned into, you know, safe houses, rat lines. You got issues with international waters, uh, passports, leaving the, leaving the docks, you know. Um, I had a good plan, though. I had a really good plan. It involved jet skis. So, <laughs> but uh, anyways, um, that was another one of my little uh, adventures. Again, here I am just minding my business in a bar, <laughs> trying to get a drink, maybe find some nookie somewhere. And this guy wants to freaking help me escape from the country. And I talked to my lawyer. I go, hey, um, I said, what do you think about this? He goes, what? what would you call this if I did this? He goes, human trafficking. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, got it. Forget I said anything, all right? So I kept them out of the conversation after that. I was like, we're not having this conversation, human trafficking. What? So, yeah, but I guess he's right. I guess that would be human trafficking. Let's, uh, uh, let's hit up some user questions here, uh, Dave. And yeah. For, for people who are watching, Dale, if they want to contact you, uh, to procure your uh, services as a, as a security <laughs> consultant or concubine or whatever the case may be. Um, I won't say human trafficker. Um, where, where can they find you? Uh, so I'm, I'm mostly on Instagram now. Um, Official American Badass, Dale Comstock. I've, I'm getting really getting far away from Facebook. I'm still on there. Um, I'm, I actually got banned. I got banned from LinkedIn and from Twitter. I, you know, for stating an opinion that, uh, of course, you know how that all works. So they didn't like it because it's me, but uh, they actually gave me my Twitter account back yesterday. Um, and LinkedIn, I'm still working on that, but, uh, and I only use those. Well, anyways, that's another story. So I, you can find me on Twitter now, um, uh, maybe LinkedIn I'll try to get reinstated today, but for sure, Instagram, Facebook, um, I have a website, dalecomstock.com. You can go through that. You can reach out. Email me through there. Um, my email address is AmericanBadass at DaleComstock.com. Pretty easy to remember, AmericanBadass at DaleComstock.com. So you can reach me there as well. Um, those are the main ways to, to catch up. I'm not hard to find. And, uh, and, and people can, uh, like you're, you, like you, I know you're working on uh, numerous books right now. And, and honestly, thank God you're immortal because, you know, it'll take time to write all those stories. <laughs> but, but for your first book, people can... They can read American Badass. Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's available anywhere no. people buy books. Um, Amazon.com, yep. And yep. and it's interesting because, you know, you talk about uh, building these improvised explosive devices for, you know, when you're working with, with UAE. And, you know, what a lot of people don't understand who haven't been in the military or haven't been in that situation is that explosives and breaching is its, it, it, it's, its own very specific field. And when you were in Delta, you were the breacher in Panama for yeah. the uh, the American hostage cruise. Like you breached right. mm -hmm. the the cell there, which yep. you know after years mm -hmm. and years of combat in Afghanistan and Iraq and and whatever, like it Panama is such is such a forgotten event. But at at a point in time, it was one of the primary combat events that had happened in U.S. you know in U.S. history of that time. Yeah, no, and you're right. It's uh, you know, it was well executed, well planned, well executed. Um, you know, we didn't take any casualties um, of the of the assault team that went in. I think it's 23 or 26 of us total. Um, we had some, we had WIA's. We got helicopters get shot down, but nobody was KIA'd, and we completed the mission. We we you know we saved Kurt Muse. Um, we plucked them out of their jaws of death, man, literally. And uh, it's 
an amazing story when you read it, you know, it's when you, when you know all the details that went into that, um, things that could have went bad, you know, like my little, my little faux pas there at the door. Um, you know, I, I fixed it though. And, uh, he's alive. So it's all worked out, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I look at, you know, I look at that. I look at my whole military career. So, you know, I started out in the 82nd airborne division infantry, long range scout, the four year mark had to make the decision. Do I want to stay in? Do I want to get out? Decided to go for the gusto. I'm going to try out for Delta, which was almost statistically impossible uh, for me to succeed. But I did at the age of 23, youngest guy ever, average age 33. Um, next thing you know, I'm there 10 years. I go to the Q course while I'm there. I've become a light and heavy weapons guy. Um, and I'm going to third special forces group, became a team sergeant. I had seen combat, every, every combat event since 1983 Grenada right up to the present in fact uh, i've been to all of them with the exception of uh, bosnia um that's the only one i didn't participate in because i was in that transition uh retiring out of the military um but I don't, I don't feel like i really missed anything either but i've been in every conflict since that time up to the very present to include yemen um but uh i went from you know i thought okay going to delta that's you know i remember guys used to say that's the final frontier of the military that is the pinnacle you know, everybody, look, SEALs, Delta Force isn't trying to be a SEAL, but we've got SEALs that are trying not to be Delta. You know, everybody wants to be at the pinnacle. That's Delta. Um, and so I thought, you know, man, I reached the pinnacle at the age of 23. Then I get out and then I get recruited by the Alphabet Company. And, uh, you know, as you know, you know, Dave, it's not easy, right? Getting through all that, the, the vetting process, the, you know, the, polygraph testing, the background checks. There's a lot that goes into that, and a super high attrition rate, um, probably higher than the unit. And so, um, but here we are, right? Made it. And so then I thought, well, does it, I thought Delta was the final frontier. Okay, I guess this is the final frontier, right. or is it? And then I get approached with this whole other thing, this mercenary work. And then I realized, no, that's actually the final frontier because now I'm going downrange with the same weapons Al Qaeda has. I'm I'm literally sewing like a grandma. I'm sewing my freaking equipment, trying to make shit to fight with, right? I'm improvising everything I got, and I'm going to go in a street fight with the bad guys, no better uh, equipped than they are. Right. And the only thing that's going to win the day is my skills themselves versus their skill set. Right. And so, to me, that was the ultimate. Uh, ultimate, that was being, that's the ultimate warrior right there. When you, you can go to combat and you don't have big army behind you to support you, you don't have close air support, you right. don't even have a medic to drag your ass off the battlefield. It's just you and them. And it comes really comes down to your, your training and your mindset and your warrior spirit when it comes to that and you walk away and you're still got your arms and legs, you know, it's a win. And to me, that was the ultimate. So I feel like I've gone the entire gamut, you know, the entire spectrum of warfare um, as a warrior, you know, from, you know, basic infantry guy to mercenary and everything in between. Um, and it's never enough. It's never enough. Right? <laughs> so I sit here and I ask myself, if somebody were to come here right now and go, I've got an opportunity for you, <laughs> you'd be interested. There's a pretty good chance. I'll say two things. How much? And when do I leave? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you know, that's the truth. You know, it's in your it's in the blood, man. Once it's in there, it's in there. You can't, you know, you always go back for another drink at the well until you fall in the well and can't get back out, you know. Well um 
it, it's funny too, and, and this is getting to the questions that people ask, but uh, something somebody sent a, a, us an email earlier um, and uh, on our Patreon and join our Patreon if you're not a member. Why aren't you? Uh, but but somebody's writing D, and you know you're talking about you know always reaching that top and then going out and you know sort of being this consummate warrior even when you're fighting without all the U.S. support, without the aircraft, without all this. And somebody wrote D and said. There's an old Team House episode where a viewer asked the guys, they asked Jack, uh, Jack and I, for the 12 people they would want on their ODA or their team in combat. And Dave said he would take himself in 11 Dale Comstocks. <laughs> you know? and I better, I better start reproducing them. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, like we've known each other for a long time and you've always been that. You know, you have been that, you know, sort of Casca, eternal warrior, the, the, the guy that was, that was, bred for war and you know we interview a lot of you know we interview people who were like mac v sog and then went to rhodesia and like that is you you you're the modern equivalent of guys still getting after it as they're pushing 70 i you mean know, we, know, yeah. we know some of those yeah. dudes you know yeah. you know the 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 man bred for war yeah no it's you know you're right and i do know some of those guys you, you probably know the same guys we're talking about you know that they're actually also, my inspiration, when I see these guys, like, Jesus, you're 78 years old, and you're still out there kicking ass, you know, it, it, what, what they have done is they've, they've broken paradigms for me, because we all believe, we all are inculcated in this mindset, you know, we only have so much, so much utility, so much shelf life, you know, when in fact we, we can fight, look, man, some of the best warriors are the oldest warriors on the planet, man, you know. Um, you know, you got, you got everything, you got experience, you're ornery, you know, you freaking don't take a lot of shit no more. And, uh, you've gotten past all the fear and stuff, you know, and, um, it's always been a part of who I am growing up. You know, my dad was in the army for 20 years. I grew up mostly in Germany at the bases over there. And I remember the, all we did as the boys, you know, we, we would go out with our BB guns and, and our dad's army equipment and helmets and k-pot and low bearing equipment and play army every day and shoot each other with bb guns and shit you know and uh hand-to-hand -hand combat we played war and that's what i was brought up in it was playing war i was i was in the agogi already when i was a little kid man you know and it just seemed like a natural fit because when my dad retired um you know we retired out of fort huachuca arizona we moved to san francisco we moved to san francisco I mean, how, how cruel is that, right? So, um, and I go to San Francisco, and I'm like a fish out of water. I go, holy shit. You know, these kids are not like the people I'm growing up around. You know, it's a totally different culture. And I couldn't wait to go back. I couldn't wait <clears throat> until I was of age, um, and I, could, I was able to go to the recruiter. And so as soon as I was old enough, I went down and signed the papers and put me in, coach. Uh, I couldn't wait to go back because – the military culture is like no culture in the world. Unfortunately, we live in a society now where they're trying to dilute it. They're trying to water it down. There's all this political correctness crap is setting in. Um, it's a different army. I'm starting to see it, um, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's not the one I grew up in. And, and we'll see how that works out for us in the future. But something tells me it ain't going to work it's out well. Time. But uh, that's the mindset I was raised in. You know, I was always a warrior. I was always a fighter. Um, even my parents, you know. My parents were like, turn the other cheek and walk away. They're like, kick his ass. If you don't kick his ass, don't come home. I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> right. you know, that was my parents, man. You know, they, they were warriors too. My mom and my dad. You yeah. know, they were pit bulls and they expected me to fight. And if you got hurt, tough shit. 
you come home or hurt you again for losing. Right. You know, you little wimp. And so that's how I was raised. And guess what? I'm not a bad guy. I have no criminal record. Zero. You can check it out. Said nothing. I've never done nothing wrong. I don't even have speeding tickets. Okay. I'm a good dude. Uh, but I do what I do is I do for for righteousness. At least right. what I think is right. You know, I stand for I stand to fight for the weak. I stand for fighting for people that are the innocent. You know, that's what I'm here for. And the world needs guys like me, especially our country. They need us. Yeah. You know, they need us. You know, and uh, whether they like it or not, they need us. You know, and so I'm proud of that. And I have no regrets. It's made me who I am. I've learned a lot of lessons. I'm not perfect. Made a lot of mistakes. Um, but uh, I continue to grow, continue to evolve. And even though I said earlier I'm 59 years old, I don't feel like I'm 59. I'll stomp the shit out of any 29-year-old out there, man, all day long. Yeah. You know, I can still shoot. I can still fight. I can still do everything I did before because I choose to think that way. Right. You know, I choose to think that way. And uh, I'll always be a warrior. Um I kind of like paradise right now, but you know what? Like I said, somebody walks in that door and goes, hey, Tom, I got a deal for you. <laughs> yeah. How much? And when, and when do we leave? <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's roll into some uh, viewer questions. Um, so, uh, 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 Pody One, uh, thank you very much. Uh, can you talk about the funniest experience uh, and lesson learned from Gary O'Neill? Uh, repeat that again the funnest experience the funniest yeah the the funniest experience uh learned oh yeah 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 so i met gary o'neill in 1982 out of camp mccall now back then he was a stud black hair you know guy was a freaking machine man and he still is man i love gary man he's a good dude um didn't know anything about him my whole platoon my alert platoon went out to camp mccall to the seer course and it was cold. I remember it was like November. Um, and we went in the bear pit every morning to do hand-to-hand combat, right? So you remember, you know, the sawdust pit, you know, especially when it's cold and it's wet. It's like freaking concrete, right? So, um, But we're out there and we're standing in a circle in our patrol caps stuff, you know, young guys. And then Gary comes out and he's the instructor for the combatives portion. We don't know anything about this guy. And then uh, we start hearing the stories, right? Guys walk through 77 ambushes. You know, Vietnam, Lerp, this, that, 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 silent such a takeout, you know. He's the expert with the knife, and he's been taking dudes out all his life, you know. Like, whoa, what the fuck, right? And then uh, and then he, he starts going into the mind over matter stuff, right? And uh, like, okay. So he has a bucket of water out there, a couple bucks of water with a rope tied to it. And he's got bicycle spokes. And he starts with taking one of the bicycle spokes, and he pulls the skin out of his neck, and he jabs the bicycle spoke to his neck. Right. And then he picks up the rope from the bucket with water, loops it around the thing. and He lifts it up. And his neck's all stretched out and he's going around in circles to spin the bucket. And we're like, holy shit. Right. And then he stops. And he puts spokes through his arms. Right. And he lifts up the buckets again and he's swinging them around. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, we're like, this is some masochistic shit right here. Right. <laughs> and then he lays down. And he has a dude drive over him with a quarter ton Jeep over his belly. <laughs> and he gets up and goes, See, I don't mind. It don't matter. Right. It's like, Jesus Christ. Right. He goes, I'm going to teach you how to fight and how to win and how to kill, you know? <laughs> and, I, and I was in awe, man. I was like, wow, wow. This guy is like a real life superhero, man. You know, I just saw it. And so right then and there, Gary O'Neill became my military mentor for the rest of my life. I have modeled myself as a soldier after him. No shit. I read the books, right? I'm like, this dude, that's what I want to be like. I want to be that guy, you know? And so 
I followed Gary over the years, you know, got out, he started bouncing. I've heard all the stories, you know, um, he was hanging around Jim West, Smokey, my, he's a good friend of mine. Um, you know, and then it was a Chanis and all those guys, you know, and I heard all the stories and stuff. And I thought, man, that's why, that's why I want to be a soldier to guys like that. That's the kind of, I want to be that guy, you know? Um, it reminds me of when I went to third group one time, the Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major calls me his office, I just met him. And he's like, Comstock, let me ask you a question. He goes, what's wrong with Rambo? I said, Rambo? He goes, yeah, what's wrong with Rambo? I thought about it and I go, I don't know, nothing. He goes, that's right. There's nothing wrong with Rambo. He goes, why can't we be more like Rambo? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, Sarge, yeah. You know? Like, that's what I'm talking about. You know? Why are we going to be these little gentleman warriors, pussies, right? right? And uh, let, let's be fucking Rambo. He goes, there's nothing wrong with Rambo. He goes, I want you to train all my ODAs in combat, hand combat. And uh, I went right on. So I, can, so I did. You know, I started running all the hand-to-hand training for a third special forces group. I was running... Uh, a team through my training every two weeks, another team every morning on my own time, zero five hundred to seven hundred in the morning. I was going in on my own time, training ODAs and combatives. You know, I um, wrote the manual, all that, all that shit. But uh, so I look at Gary O'Neill, right? He's always been my mentor. You know, we've we've crossed paths here and there. We've done some interviews together. And what was interesting is when I wrote my book, American Badass, I did not know that he was actually writing American Warrior at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. American Warrior, American Badass. I go, man, that is so cool. He's my mentor. He is the American Warrior. You yeah. know, I'm just a dumbass, badass, <laughs> you know, following him, you know. And so I'm the American Badass. He's the American Warrior. And I just thought that was really kind of cool that, uh, you know, my mentor is writing the book also, you know, and I'm able to write a book because of his mentorship of yeah. what he showed me early in the life, you know. He molded me as a warrior, as a soldier. Now, I've got a lot of mentors. My father was my mentor, um, big time, my number one mentor, my grandfather. Um, you know, Jim Smokey West was yeah. actually one of my mentors for martial arts. I mean, this guy is, this guy taught me how to fucking, how to really fight. Yeah. You know, you guys know, you know Yeah, Jim. we've had him it's on. Scary, man. And Smokey, yeah. He, <laughs> Yeah. So he's, he's actually one of my mentors as well, right? And then Gary O'Neill. So I've got different mentors for different parts of my life, yeah. but I'm the amalgamation of all of those guys, the good and the bad, and that's who I am. And so, you know, hopefully now, you know, I am now a mentor for, for, for many out there. I do have a lot of young men that follow me. I have a lot of coaching clients that come to me and go, hey, I want to learn, man. You know, I want to learn the mindset, you know. And so I teach them how to think, not what to think, how to think. Right. And uh, that's what made all the difference is, you know, this way of thinking that Gary has, you know, and, and Jim has, and, you know, my father has, and my grandfather has. There's certain people in this world that have shaped the way I think. And it's because of that. Um, I am who I am today. Uh, Chris Rolson, thank you very much. Dale, do you think you would have whooped uh, Tim Sismansky uh, had that fight not been shut down? Yeah, hell yeah. All day long, man. <laughs> <laughs> funny you said that, bring that up, because not too many people know about that. So it was 19, uh, I'm going to say like 1988, 89, something like that. I can't remember now. So the I fought the first Valley Tudo match in the United States in Richmond, Virginia. Valley Tudo is Portuguese for anything goes. UFC was just coming out. Um, I got, you know, I had an opportunity to fight this Valley Tudo match. So I went to Richmond, 
Uh, it was three five-minute rounds. It was a sanctioned street fight. There were no rules. I broke both my hands, jacked up the other guy, put him in a seat collar. Um, and then I ended up in Richmond, Virginia, and I was invited to go up there. I think it was Frank Cucci. Um, he had a, a school up there. He's, he hosts this fight. I was invited to come up and fight uh, Shemansky, who was at the time uh, one of the blue team commanders, right? And uh, apparently he was the collegiate level wrestler, you know, All-American, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they wanted me to fight him. So they wanted, they count, you know, they couched it as, um, you know, Navy SEAL versus Delta Force Battle of the Elite, right? So um, so I go up there. Actually, the unit sergeant major went up there also to watch the fight because we already had some beer bets going because <laughs> up to this point, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever heard of the CT Olympics, but it's an event that happens usually like in Austria. They invite all the, all the SWAT teams, counterterrorist teams to come and compete, right? And uh, it's usually 7,500 teams. We would field a team every year. We actually had to try out for this team. It was five guys and two spares. Uh, you know, Dev Group would send their team, and we would beat everybody's ass, even the seals in the water. We outswam them, outshot them. We always took number the top five positions, always, right? And so their sergeant major would have to keep giving my sergeant major a keg of beer. Right? It was always a beer bet or some shit like that. So they're like, okay, let these two guys fight, battle of the elite, you know, fight for another keg of beer. So I'm going to go win another keg of beer for my Sergeant Major. <laughs> and so we show up in the morning and, uh, you know, get all the, 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 the work up with the doctor, the pre-checks. I think I'm good to go. I'm going to come back that night. And I'm going to kick his ass. This is on my agenda. Um, and so when I get, I show up, they're like, uh, hey, the SEAL got DQ'd. And I'm like, why? He got herpes. I go, what does that mean? He goes, well, you know, if he squirts some herpes juice in your eyeball, you go blind and sue everybody. <laughs> I'm like, really? What? Okay. So, okay. <laughs> and so they had me fight uh, the West Virginia Tough Man champion. And uh, I made short work of that guy. Freaking took him out pretty fast. But So I never got a chance to fight him. But could I have beat him? Hell yeah. I'm a fighter, man. I'm pretty damn good. Um, one thing I got that most guys don't have is I got heart, man. I got big lungs, and I got a lot of endurance, man. You beat the shit out of me for hours. Eventually, you're going to wear yourself out, and I'm just going to beat you up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think I could have beat him. No doubt, I could have beat him. I know I could have beat him. You know, say to me, guys, and kick my ass, man. The only guy who kicked my ass is Jim West. Yeah. Uh, that guy scares me, man. Yeah. I've, been yeah. I've been thrown across the room by him a few times, so I can attest. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, you know, like, I, I don't think the people who, you know, who don't know Smokey understand just what, no. and, and not even just like how tough he is, but what a skilled fighter he is. Like, they don't yeah. understand what that actually he, means. He's a skilled fighter. I, I'd go further than that. I've told him this before. He is a skilled instructor. He's yeah. one of the best instructors I've ever met in my yep. life. And and that's where he's real. Like, yes, he can kick your ass. We, we all know that. But his real strength, I think, is in instruction. I mean, he, he's phenomenally yeah. good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. Uh, first time I went to him, um, so my, my son, God, man, he's 34 now, but when he was four, he was all into Ninja Turtles, right? He was out doing karate chops in the front yard. And I said, James, I said, you want to learn karate like the Ninja Turtles? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I ended up taking him to YMCA. Okay, that was a joke, right? Daycare. And we're not getting nothing out of this. I get on the phone with a friend of mine, Bart, Bart Wiggins. He's friends with Smokey. Oh, yeah. I go, dude. I said, dude, you got any recommendations? He goes, yes, man. He goes, you need to go see this guy, Smokey. Here's his address. <laughs> go there right now, right? He said, you won't regret it. I said, okay. So I go over there with my, just my kid. I walk in. 
And there's all these boys out there, my, about my son's age, and they got these uh, padded baseball bats. And they're out there beating the shit out of each other. They're going for it, you know, wah, 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 you know, like a freaking ball. And so Jim's like, hey, welcome in. He goes, hey, go out there and fight. You know, and my son goes out there, grabs one. He's getting it on, you know, and he's smiling. He's happy. You know, my kid comes out and says, you like that? He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, you want to do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how we actually got started. And I told my son, I said, listen, man, I said, here's the deal. I said, if you start, you have to finish. What does finishing mean? It means you got to have a black belt. You got to win a black belt. You can't quit. You agree? Yes. And I thought, well, hell, why don't I just do it with him, right? So I'm already here. So that's when I got involved, right? So now it's me and James, my son, fighting with Smokey, right? Training with him. And there was one other girl named Susan um, Mayran. And or Julie, I mean, Julie Mayran. She was pretty badass, man. She, she stayed in there. She was one of his other black belts. And she would take a beating and just kept coming back for more, man. She was amazing. But, um, you know, I, so we trained with Jim. And by the time my kid was seven, he got his first three black belt through Jim. And Jim, look, you don't do karatas and uh, katas and, and uh, forms for your black belt. You know, ha, kia, good boy, here's your belt. No, what we were doing is we were literally going to karate clubs like in Virginia, closing the doors with their, with their master and his students that he wanted to promote. And we go in the back room. And it was a sanctioned street fight. Me, my son, and my daughter back there kicking ass like a real street fight. No sparring. This is a fight. <laughs> you know, and whoever wins gets their belt. You know, yeah. and we did that all day long, which was really cool watching my son, who's seven, watching my daughter, who's uh, nine and a half, they're out there freaking throwing stubs, man, beating the shit out of each other, man, freaking bare knuckles, <laughs> rolling around, you know, and they're earning their belt. And I go, that's what I signed up for. And nobody that I know of did that except for Jim West. Yeah. And, you know, and so, so I learned from him. Um, you know, the guy's taught me a lot. Can't take nothing from him. Um, I've got a lot of experience, you know, because of him, um, even my own experiences now. But, uh, yeah, if you want to learn how to fight, Jim West is the guy to go to, man. Let's uh, right. keep going through these questions here. Um, uh, Alex Bennett, thank you. Um, Dale, you started up quite a few successful security companies. What are the processes of starting up su- successful security company and keeping it good without a race to the bottom outfit? Yeah, so um, so my first company I started was in, right after 9 11. Actually, prior to 9-11, seven months prior to 9-11, uh, I started coming from global security consultants. I started getting into nuclear security. Didn't know anything about nuclear security. Had no idea what I was doing. But I went to a security conference for the NRC. I said, hey, you guys, it's me. I'm here for nuclear security. If you ever need some help, call me, right? They all were scared of me and my partner. We looked pretty scary. Uh, we had to lure them over to our table with little shiny things. Go, hey, I'll give you this little knife. You come over here and let me talk to you, you know, and give me a business card. Well, then 9-11 happened, and... That's when this call started. Hey, we need to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. And that's how I got into the business. It was very successful. 2004, uh, we sold our company as G4S, Whack and Hug. Um, now, what does it take? So I, I made a mistake. We made the mistake of selling the company in 2004. Why? Because we thought it's going to die off. Security's right. going to end. You know, it's always overhead. We, man, we couldn't have been more wrong ever. Triple Canopy was started after my company. There's a long story behind that. But basically, one of the guys, the owner, plagiarized my website. Um, I met the guy. I know the guy personally. He's in B Squadron. Um, and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, I got a competitor. But they still couldn't get in the nuclear industry. Blackwater was competing with my company. Uh, they were just getting started. 
again, I was keeping them outside of the nuclear security industry. I, I, I owned all that. Um, and then I sold the company thinking I got to get rid of it, you know, make money. And then it never went away. So I ended up reincorporating again, something called Risk Control Institute. I sold that in 2011. Um, and then I've been doing that ever since I've, you know, I've got my company here, Strategic Outcomes Indonesia. I have a company called Strategic Outcomes Florida. Um, I have tier one performance coaching. So these are small enterprises. Um, you know, some of them are dealing with security. What, what's important is, and this is where everybody makes the mistake. They become, um, discouraged. You've got to have a dream. You gotta, you gotta have, you have to imagine what you want, what it looks like. Every, every nuance about a company, you have to sense it in the here and now. Now that sounds kind of crazy, but it actually ties into what I teach, which is autogenic conditioning and future pacing. So this company I have here in Bali, I imagined it a long time ago and I saw, okay, I, didn't, I knew, I'm the only guy to know anything about training canine, the only guy. So suddenly I, my wife, who doesn't know how to turn on a computer, didn't know how to turn on a computer five years ago, now runs a MacBook Pro because I trained her. I taught her how to use Excel sheets. I taught her about HR. I taught her, okay, we need licensing. Okay, what do we got to do? Let her manage that. Oh, we need people. Okay, we need to train people. We need to find dogs. We got to train dogs. So what I did is a train-the-trainer program. I mm -hmm. started with my wife. Then I hired a field supervisor, and then I tr hired trainers. And I trained the trainers, I trained the trainers, I trained the handlers, I trained the dogs. Um, and this thing started to grow and verge and blossom to the point where I don't do anything. My wife runs the entire company, every aspect of it, licensing, payroll, HR, training. She trains the dogs. She trains the handlers. Um, she does, you know, a lot of the uh, business interactions and networking, things like that. So it has, it, but it started with a dream. The dream was I would love to live in Bali, paradise right where i have my own business and i get to take my dogs that i love my pets and make money off of them and train them how cool is that it's not really a job um and so i imagined everything i have and it became a reality because because albert einstein said not just albert einstein but nikola tesla and many other physicists success is based on frequency it's not philosophy it's physics it's physics and this is the key. It's not about willpower. It has shit to do with willpower, has shit to do with philosophy. It's only going to get you so far. What gets you over the finish line is imagining where you want to be and the life that you want to live. I'm actually living that life. No, I'm not rich. I don't want to be rich. That's not my objective. My objective is be happy and experience all the things I want to experience. And I live in Bali. And I live in the Philippines. And I live in Florida. I, how cool is that? And... I make my own hours. I'm, here I am. I come in at 7 o'clock this morning to do, do a call with you guys, you know. Um, it's the dream. It's the imagination. And you, it's physics. It's literally physics. It's always physics. Um, that's another area. You know, I can't go into that now, but uh, it has to do with frequency. It has to do with your nervous system. Um, it has to do with metaphysics. There's a lot more that goes into this, but all my successes, everything I've ever done in my life had nothing to do with willpower. It had everything to do with imagination. Right. Dream. So if you want to start a security company, start with the dream. What's it going to look like? What do you want it to look like? What do you want it to feel like? What do you, how do you want to live it? You start with that. Then you invoke the next thing is called the law of action. You have to do something. Start doing the research, as I did. Start training the trainers, training my wife. Start a building. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm a one-man one army, 
and I got 65 employees. I got 45 trained canines. I got a corporation here with a lot of assets, and we're kicking ass. Right. It started with it started with a dream. Right. Start to it. Um, Alejandro, thank you very much. Uh, same question I asked Paul Howe. Uh, what do you think is the best and most effective piece of protective equipment and kit a team guy can wear, and why is it the mustache? Uh, thanks for coming on, <laughs> mate. <laughs> this has got 33 kills, my friend. All right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, R2D, uh, thank Oh, I, did you want to respond to that? <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, I do have an answer to that. Body armor, all right? So when I was in the unit, <clears throat> all, we wore was, all we wore was body armor with no plates. Level 3A, right? And, and everybody just wore the vest, except for me. I actually wore the collar. I wore the plates and I wore, wore the growing protection all the time. And people thought I was being a pussy. I go, no. And I had a conversation with Pete Blaber, who was my troop commander at the time. He wrote the book, Mission of Men and Me. Yeah. Um, we were having this conversation about body armor and he, his attitude was, look, I want to be light, you know, and be able to move fast. And I'm like, yeah, I want to be able to take a lot of hits and just keep on moving nice and slow and methodically and take them out. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was a, you know, opposing, you know, uh, a, you know, Posing positions on body armor. Most guys didn't want to even have to wear it, but they had to wear it. So they wore as little as they needed. Right. So then, then Mogadishu happens, right? <clears throat> and freaking dudes are getting killed. Like the Protect helmet. Okay, I always wore the Kevlar helmet. I got pictures of me in the whole unit. Everybody wearing Protect except me. I'm wearing Kevlar. Right? Everybody thought I was just a pussy. Until Mogadishu happened. <sighs> then they couldn't find enough Kevlar helmets. They couldn't strap on enough armor. They couldn't reinforce their, their body armor. They couldn't, they didn't have it. I right. had it. I'm good. Right. Put me in. I'll fight the war by myself. Right. right. So, um, and so to me, that's always, and I, and I watched it go down in Afghanistan. Right. So guys are going out humping the mountains and stuff. And all they're carrying is a plate carrier. Right. They're going light, just the pellets, a plate carrier. And like, why? Well, he goes to wait, you know? And I'm like, well, dude, everybody, every FOB has got a gym now. Get your ass in there and go to work. Keep working out until you can carry all that weight and it doesn't affect you. I always wore full armor, full plate, full protection. Always. Always. I don't care how high up the mountain I'm going to go. I always wore it. And if, and if I was a weakling, I made sure I got into that gym and kept working out until I could maintain it. And I always carried armor. To me, it's the most important thing you can carry besides your weapon is your armor. I know a lot of guys are alive today because they were wearing armor. Right. Um, they, were taking hits, they were taking hits right into the plate through their vest, you know, and they were surviving it. Um, so to me, that's the most important equipment you can carry is body armor. Um, yeah. give yourself a chance. You know, if it's too heavy, get your ass in the gym. All right. Work out. All right. Build up to it. That body armor eventually will become a part of your body. You won't even know you're wearing it. Yeah. You won't, you know, it's like my backpack. I carry a backpack around 35 pounds every day. It's my man purse. I've been carrying it forever and I get used to it. It doesn't even bother me the way it carried all day long. You know, everybody else would be sniveling about it, but you know, if you do something long enough, your body will adapt to it. And yeah. so my answer is armor. Wear your armor. Wear all your armor. Okay, so don't take no shortcuts. Just like yeah. you don't take a shortcut with your weapon. Okay? And wear those plates, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, dude. The plates stop. <laughs> they stop <laughs> the 762, man. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, they're not doing you any good. <clears throat> uh, R2D, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Team House. Love your work. Another phenomenal interview. Well, that's because we have a phenomenal guest. Um, <laughs> Thanks. 
Alejandro, thanks again. Uh, with all these things you've done in the private sector, how much do you think a giraffe would sell for on the open market? When he says open market, I think it means black market. Uh, and he says, hope you can come back. And definitely when your ne- when your next book pops, Dale, we want you yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. The, the giraffe is a bit of an inside joke, but if you had to wager what a giraffe goes for on the black market, what do you think, Dale? <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, a giraffe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. you got me on that one. I have no idea. Does he have horns? <laughs> <laughs> what, well, Dale, like, what, what, if you showed up to one of your clients and they said, hey, you know, I'm trying to get rid of this illegal zoo. The last thing I have is this, is this a giraffe. A full-grown you, giraffe. You live in Bali. Uh, would you buy it? How much would you pay for a giraffe? Shit. What am I going to do with it? Giraffe, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, hey, they do have zoos here, and they actually do have uh, right here in Bali. They have the Bali Zoo, and they have all kinds of elephants and tigers and shit like that stuff you would find in Indonesia. I don't know if you can find a giraffe here, but uh, you know, we could probably add a giraffe for a couple bucks. I, I think. <laughs> I, I think uh, it, was, it was JT Patton uh, who had that conundrum. It was, up. yeah. And I think he, I think he said it was like it was like thirty six thousand dollars. I, I can't yeah. remember, but yeah. Uh, uh, Sporman Group LLC. Uh, That's Clint. Clint Sporman. Thank you very much for the donation. I think that's Clint. Uh, Did you ever get a chance to meet or train with Carl Sestari before before he passed? I don't think so. Yeah, he was a. That's uh, where we all met Clint. He was a big uh, World War II OSS uh, Fairbairn site. Yeah, yeah. We'll Uh, we'll have to introduce Dale to Clint the next time. Yeah, uh, for sure. Into into the city. Um, Jungle Jim Scott, thank you very much for your donation. We deeply appreciate it. Um, and that's, 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 that's it, man. Dale, um, thank you so much for doing this interview, waking up early out there in Indonesia uh, to do this. This has been phenomenal, man. It's really fun to catch up with you again, talk some more about some of these wild adventures that you get into. And uh, I'm looking forward to the books. Uh, you said that the tentative title for the, the next book about your uh, adventures and misadventures adventures is Running the Razor's Edge. Um, yeah. you're still working on it though, working on a few other yeah. projects as well. Um, yeah, when, when you, when you get some of these to publication, let us know. We'd, we'd love to talk some more. Yeah. What I'm going to do is I thought about, um, what I'm going to do is make them all eBooks. It's okay. easier to copyright it and, and send it out. Right. And then if there's somebody that wants a hard copy, then I have a source I can go to that can actually print, right. For someone that wants a hard copy. But, uh, um, I'm going to kind of, because I actually sell mostly ebooks on Amazon. Even my book, most people just order, you know, PDF copies of it. So, um, kind of the way everybody's going now these days. So, but for those that want it for nostalgia purposes or, you know, an autograph, I'll, I'll make hard copies okay. as well. But, um, it's been on my agenda. It just seems like every day I get ready to sit down and start writing again, something pops up, you know, another to do thing. Um, it's all good though. It's all in the right direction. But, I'll have it soon. Um, okay. I'm excited about getting it out. I'm excited about getting all the books out. Um, I think that once I'm finished with the details, and uh, I think I think some of them have potential to maybe be a, a movie, you know, or could could go down that road. Easy, you know, because, absolutely, Dale. Yeah, yeah. Dale. I, uh, I I recently someone was t- talking about how this could make a great movie, and I recently I volunteered myself 
to play a young Dale Comstock <laughs> acid gambit era. We we need to get him a suit though. You no, know, no, those, no. Like, back 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 in, back in eighty nine, like Dale was kind of like not quite my size, but he wasn't quite Dale's size today either. So I think yeah, like eighty yeah, eighty nine eighty nine era, yeah. I, I could I could jump into that role. Um, Dale, so you're doing coaching now do for for either young young people who are are seeking success in whatever arena they or even executives where can they find you for their coaching if they want to hire you i I would recommend either go to my website Mm dalecomstock.com or just directly email me american badass at dalecomstock.com and do you do group do you do group coaching like there were if there were a bunch of like military hopefuls that wanted to like get together in a group uh do you do things like that yeah yeah, I do group sessions. Um, it's, it's, it's less expensive as well for them, you know. Um, it's more interactive. Um, and then I do a lot of mostly private coaching. Most of the guys and girls that come to me, uh, my primary demographic is men between 45 and 59 and women. Um, I call them the old man clan. They're the ones that put the kids to college. The wife won't talk to them anymore. And they're fat and pregnant. And they're like, you know, I want to I recapture, recover my life. Um, so I get those guys and then I get, uh, men between 33 and 37. Uh, these are mostly business entrepreneurs. They're, some are veterans, some are not, but they're looking at how can I expand and build my business, um, and do more. And then the other group is men from 19 to 26. They're either veterans or they want to go in the military and they want to go into special forces, special operations. And, uh, I have a, I have a unique program just for those guys to get them, get them ready for it, to include a training program. In fact, I just signed a guy up last night. He's actually, uh, he's actually a police officer, SWAT, and uh, he wants to try out for DEA selection, and he contacted me. So I'm going to kind of put him in that 1926-year-old category of training, preparing for that. Um, so, that, yeah, I do that. I do that quite often. Um, I have a pretty full load. I can only take so many people at a time uh, because the, the program is normally eight weeks long. It's uh, two hours two plus hours a week on a zoom call like this, it's recordable. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's goes in stages, but basically what I teach people, really what I teach people is how to think, yeah. um, not what to think. I teach you how to think. And, uh, that's the key to this thing. I, I mentioned physics earlier. Success is based on physics. It is. And, uh, I teach the science behind success. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing how it works, but I do coach, I've coached millionaires, um, I've coached people from all walks of life. I mean, you name it, photographers, police officers, soldiers, you name it. I've coached them. Coaches, well, I've coached international can, coaches. Can Jack sign up to be coached on how to hook up with a 31-year-old starlet? <laughs> Put me in the game, coach. Put me in the game. Uh, it's real easy. Start with shaving the head and doing Get the mustache. All right, good. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. The hair's got to go. Yeah, the, the, the hair, the the hair, hair is going scary. anyway. So, yeah, might as well just no cut hair. to the chase. Uh, guys, no go and, uh, go check out Dale's book, American Badass, that's out today. Um, please check out our Patreon down in the description if you haven't already. You get access to these episodes ad-free and some bonus episodes and shit like that. It's cool. Uh, next week, we're going to have Jim Morris on the show. He served in Special Forces in Vietnam. He is the author of War Story, uh, The Devil's Secret Name, and his latest book is called The Dreaming Circus. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to him. He's a, he's a phenomenal dude. Um, so we will be back next Friday with Jim Morris. Uh, Dale, again, thank you. We love you, man. Really appreciate it, man. And yeah, uh, Thanks for having me. 
We'll see everyone next Friday. All right. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.